again, everybody. You're listening to the New Discourses Podcast, and I'm James Lindsay, and normally I'm happy to welcome you to the New Discourses Podcast, and I guess today I still am, but I also regret having to record another episode that I did not expect of the Groomer Schools podcast series that I did last October and November. So I did three episodes. I'm not going to summarize them in tremendous detail but I'll just point out what they were. Groomer Schools 1. I summarized that there's a long history of using sexual and sexuality education in Marxism, at least a century old, to try to achieve some, some goals. One is to, to destabilize the children, to sexualize children in particular. So it's to destabilize the children, to make them groomable, if you will, to uh, Marxist ideas, to get them to crave, to need a liberation from the repressive society they find themselves in. But in the process, you also create the conditions by which the younger generation will sever itself from the older generation, from their family, from their existing nation and culture, and from the religion that they grew up with, which probably has more conservative morals. That was Groomer Schools episode one. Groomer Schools 2, I read a paper from Queer Theory, which is going to be similar to what I'm doing today. And in that episode, I covered a paper that attacks the idea of childhood innocence, particularly at the level of early childhood development psychology and early childhood education. This paper is by Hannah Dyer, and it talks about having to go after the idea of childhood innocence entirely so that you can create queer futurity. In other words, so that you can uh, awaken the possibility for a queer future in the children that you are sexually and ideologically abusing through the comprehensive sexual education or sexualities education that you're giving them. And that's the name that we see for this program, Comprehensive Sexualities Education, uh, embedded within social-emotional learning programs, for example, especially transformative social-emotional learning. And this has backing from the United Nations and has had for two decades beyond every other thing. Lots of organizations that you hear mentioned in other uh, queer theory episodes or, or papers or whatever, like Secus, uh, are also implicated in this. In the third episode, I put critical race theory in with critical queer theory and explained how what they were doing or what they are doing in our grammar schools is using a identity politics one-two punch to funnel kids into the queer theory, particularly the groomer idea following the, the roadmap of Mao Zedong's educational program, which in the ensuing months I've now read more about Mao, more about Mao's programs, more about Maoist China and their processes of thought reform, aka brainwashing, she uh, now in Chinese. Literally, that's where we get the term brainwashing. If you didn't know, she is to wash, now is brain, she now. Wash brain, brainwashing is where we get this term, and the, the translation often given in kind of formal literature is thought reform. Re-education, maybe, would be another word. Um, this is what communists do in gulags, and so, but they also do it proactively in schools and throughout society and culture, through mass media and entertainment. But the focus here was schools. So last night, I discovered another paper, and now I have to do an episode four on Drag Queen Story Hour. So you'll have noticed this being June, Pride Month, as it were, of 2022, some almost nine months since the Grimmer Schools series, you will have noticed that drag queens are kind of everywhere. 
drag queens at bars, drag queens at restaurants, drag queens at parks, drag queens in schools, drag queens at public libraries, children present in all of these circumstances, and it's all over everything. The gigantic push for drag queens. Drag Queen Story Hour is a project where drag queens come and they read stories or books or whatever to children in classrooms and libraries. Cities across America have been hosting these for, I think they started in 2015, so seven years. And they're on, you know, both feet stamped on the accelerator with this right now. Little did I realize until I had somebody send me one and then started digging around in the academic literature last night, there are lots of academic papers. As one shouldn't be surprised to find out anymore, there are lots of academic papers defending and explaining Drag Queen Story Hour. Today, I'm going to go through one that I went through on Twitter, but it's by no means the only one. I, in fact, just saw another one, which, in, in fact, not only defends it within the context of public libraries and school libraries, but offers methods for training people to do them. But this paper was sent to me last night. It's from 2020, so it's a couple years old. January of 2021 is when it was published online, actually. Um, so it's a year and a half old, I should say. It's in the uh, volume 50, year 2020, issue number five of Curriculum Inquiry. Uh, it is by a trans person by the name of Harper Keenan and a drag artist who is also famous for having written a little children's book called something like The Drag Queen's Hips Go Swish, 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 or something like this that goes by the moniker of Lil Miss hot mess. Lil Miss Hot Mess and Harper Keenan wrote this paper together. So a trans person and a drag queen teamed up to write a paper called Drag Pedagogy, the Playful Practice of Queer Imagination in Early Childhood. And that's a concatenation of words that I'm sure you're just like, what? Drag pedagogy. So that means a theory of education rooted in drag. That's what pedagogy means. The playful practice of queer imagination in early childhood. Queer imagination in early childhood by Little Miss Hot Mess. So your children can grow up to be Little Miss Hot Messes too. And no kidding, they outline a early childhood educational program rooted in the concept of drag and centering upon Drag Queen Story Hour. Sometimes it's called Drag Queen Story Time. Either way. Like I said, this paper was published in 25th January 2021 in Curriculum Inquiry. It has five citations, not hugely influential in terms of its citation count, but it exists. And like I said, it's not by any means the only one. I just mentioned one about school libraries. There's another one featured here, Normative Drag Culture and the Making of Precarity, and it goes on and on. So the abstract of this paper reads, I'm going to go through the whole thing for you. Welcome to Drag Queen Story Hour, Groomer Schools, Episode 4, on the New Discourses Podcast, read by your favorite, not drag queen, James Lindsay. The abstract reads, in recent years, a program for young children called Drag Queen Story Hour has ridden, risen to simultaneous popularity and controversy. This article, written collaboratively by an education scholar and a drag queen involved in organizing Drag Queen Story Hour, contextualizes the program within the landscape of gender and education as well as within the world of drag, and argues that Drag Queen Story Hour, 
provides a generative extension of queer pedagogy into the world of early childhood education. Well, there's a sentence, isn't there? And argues that Drag Queen Story Hour provides a generative extension of queer pedagogy into the world of early childhood education. So you have some sense of what early childhood education involves before we continue with this abstract, right? Little kids. And you know what a drag queen is. But generative extension of queer pedagogy, that's important. What's queer pedagogy? Queer pedagogy is what we explored in grammar schools too. It's the idea that you're going to use queer theory as an educational model to give kids queer identities. Queer doesn't mean just lesbian, gay, etc. Hannah Dyer was clear about that in her paper. She said it's not the purpose of queer theory to create stable LGBTQ identities. It is, in fact, to make sure that the identities stay fluid and, more importantly, politically actionable. It is to create politicized queer activists. That's the purpose of queer education. To overcome childhood innocence, for example. Childhood innocence is a narrative, they tell us, that's imposed to protect certain children so that they'll grow up with a higher probability of being normal and acceptable to society rather than becoming queer activists who agitate to overthrow the very idea of normalcy and a society organized with normalcy. Generative extension, however, generative is not a haphazard word. They aren't throwing buzzword word salad here. Generative refers to the approach of Paolo Ferreri, who we've spent months now unpacking. Just to briefly summarize, the Freirian educational model begins with a dialogue with the students. The teacher, as actually educator, as facilitator, is going to engage in dialogue as equals, which is already a grooming behavior when it's adults and children together. But now we're talking about drag queens, by the way. As equals with the children, we're going to engage in dialogue to find out what themes are relevant to their lives in terms of the themes that are interesting to Marxist agitators. So you're data mining children, just like social-emotional learning programs begin with lots of surveys, to data mine to find the cracks into which they can insert their theory, then freeze it, and then break open the rocks of your kid's head to make them useful to their program. So you're going to ask them questions. You're going to expose them to things like drag queens or like uh, racial statistics or whatever. And you're going to find where they have an emotional reaction. That's the social-emotional learning process as it evolved out of the Freirian context. Freire says you're going to look for those generative themes. What are the places of oppression and marginalization in their life? And those are the places that you're going to look for your educational lessons. And you're going to form your educational lessons around those. He's talking about literacy. So rather than teaching people disconnected words and syllables that don't have anything to do with their lives, like by teaching them to read simple things first, they're going to focus on words that mean something to them, like slum, or like day laborer, or like misery, or starvation, or suffering. You're going to use words like that, or racist, or sexist, or drag, or gender, or all kinds of things in the new identity politics context. Those generative concepts are then used in a process that Freire calls conscientization, which is a cult grooming process with the so-called educator as a facilitator, or in social-emotional learning, as a facilitator to help the students understand the social and emotional context in which those generative themes exist in quote-unquote reality. Marxists believe that they have the only, because they're Gnostics, believe that they have the only true apprehension of reality and therefore have a right, you might even say a divine right, to guide mankind and society and individuals 
into their program or through their program, kicking and screaming, to the idealized utopian history, uh, end of history that they envision. And we will hear about utopianism here, and we will hear lots of Gnosticism in this paper as well. So generative here means entering into the Freyrian program. The goal of the Freyrian program, not to summarize Freyri here, but it, we're doing groomer school, so let's do it, because it's the context that matters, is that you bring up, the, you, you data mine the kids to identify the generative themes. You present the gen generative themes in an abstract, he calls codified process. You give a codification of the circumstance. Maybe it's gender, and you're codifying it through drag queens. I don't know. Then you have them problematize that concept to begin decodifying it. So you have them understand the oppressions involved. Why aren't men allowed to be drag queens? Or why do people think it's weird? Why is it against the rules in schools to bring sexualized drag queen characters performing sexualized drag queen things in front of children? Why is that against the rules? You problematize. Oh, it's to ensure that normalcy and childhood innocence are preserved. But you aren't that innocent, are you? You're, you're like us. You're as equals, right? And then as you problematize that, the next stage in decodification is to get the kids to see themselves in terms of the problematized codification. In other words, all of the oppression inherent in the system, as it were, they are to see themselves as oppressed by that system. Or if they can't see themselves that way, to see others that way for whom they have to be allies or to whom they have to be allies. That's the Freyrian method in a nutshell. That's the program, and the goal is conscientization. And the goal of conscientization is to turn them into activists who are going to try to overthrow the existing system, when in the queer context, the system is the idea that anything can be considered normal, and thus something else abnormal. So when you're in the queer context, crazy is considered abnormal, so crazy has to be embraced. Being trans is considered abnormal, so you have to cut off your twig and berries or your breasts. You have to identify differently. You have to challenge the binary. This is what this is about. Groomer schools. Drawing on the work of Jose Esteban Munoz, sorry, it's been a while since I did my Spanish, the authors discuss five interrelated elements of Drag Queen's story hour, that offer early childhood educators a way to send into a sense of queer imagination, play as praxis, aesthetic transformation, st strategic defiance. Don't these sound like things you want to teach your kids? Play as praxis, aesthetic transformation, strategic defiance, destigmatization of shame, in collaboration with a drag queen at school. And embodied kinship. Sounds like grooming. Embodied kinship. You find family-type relationships. And I'm not kidding. Just wait till you hear this. But you're going to find family-type relationships in terms of your embodiment. What it means to be in your body. What it means to challenge the boundaries of your body. Like other people that are challenging the boundaries of their body. A.K.A. grooming. Groomer schools. Drag Queen Story Hour is groomer schools. And they're going to tell us this. They are telling us this. Ultimately, the authors propose that, quote, drag pedagogy, in other words, a theory of education rooted in drag, using drag as a means to do education, or in the Freyrian generative concept, to conscientize. The authors propose that drag pedagogy provides a performative approach to queer pedagogy that is not simply about LGBT lives, but, and in italics, living queerly. So the goal 
is to create an educational program using drag to provide a performative, a play, pretend, approach to queer pedagogy. In other words, to educate your kids at a young, early childhood age into queerness. That is not simply about LGBT lives, but about them living queerly, which of course is political. It's not even just being, you know, trans or non-binary or pansexual or any of these things. It's a lifestyle, a politicized lifestyle of overthrowing and resisting the concept of normalcy. This is Groomer School City. This is an academic paper backing up Drag Queen Story Hour. Nothing about Drag Queen Story Hour, and you need to understand this. This drag queen push that's blowing up this Pride 2022 year, you need to understand, is not organic. It is not just happening. It's not coming up out of the ground. There are academic papers justifying it going back years. There are academic papers explaining why it is an educational program. Multiple papers going back years. It's happening through implemented activism that's somehow funded. None of this is organic. There are papers, there are trainings derived from the papers, there are activists, there is a lot of money going into it, and it's all happening very, very quickly because it's not organic. They're using Pride 2022 as an excuse to put the pedal to the metal on drag queens. And we're going to hear why. And what we're going to hear is that it's a strategic maneuver to get kids to not necessarily be LGBT. They say that. But to live queerly. To become political activists. Destabilize political activists who live queerly. Who overthrow and challenge and disrupt and hate the idea of the normal. Who see the idea of a normal as a Gnostic prison. Their body as a prison that they have to escape from some way or another. That the rules, the norms, the values, the expectations of the existing society limit who they could possibly be. Their potentialities of being, in the words of kind of the first queer theorist, Michel Foucault. They have to escape that. They have to break free of the prison and the suffering they experience by living queerly gives them the Gnostic insight to break free of the prison. We're going to hear this throughout queer theory literature. I've got more of that coming uh, when we read through, for example, um, some of uh, the uh, Eve Sedgwick's uh, Epistemology of the Closet from 1988 coming up soon here on the podcast. So let's read this. Let's see what this groomer business is about. And they're going to tell you. It's, they don't say it's grooming, but they say it's grooming. Drag queens, they say, have historically been relegated to the realm of the night. So they're marginalized. Remember how Freire talks about the marginal and marginalized knowledge is pushed to the outside? This is in the politics of education. I think it's in chapter six, the illiterate as marginal man. We did a whole podcast on that specific topic. Drag queens have been historically relegated to the realm of the night. They're marginal, but they've been marginalized. They've been marginalized by a society that values normalcy, not drag queens in front of children. Childhood innocence. You know, good things. They've been marginalized, and this is an unjust process. And so it's their duty to recognize themselves through a critical consciousness or here a queer consciousness so that they can be moved back to the center where power resides. That was the purpose. We have to understand that the drag queen, or the queer in the technical queer theory sense, has been marginalized to the edge of society through unjust social 
norms and expectations and processes, and they therefore have a understanding of what it's like to be imprisoned in the margins of society. And as a whole part of the of the existing society, as the marginalized character that understands marginalization and the process that got them there and the things that marginalize them, they have to be brought into the center to bring that insight, that Gnostic insight, that Promethean flame into the middle of the society where they can create change. And so we begin. Drag queens have historically been, historically, because this is a, you know, we're going to change that now, but we're also talking about the science of historical conditions, just like Marx. Drag queens have historically been relegated to the realm of the night. In the past few years, however, drag performers have made their way from the dimly lit bars of gayborhoods and into the fluorescent lights of libraries and classrooms from margin to center. Drag superstar Nina West released a children's music album entitled Drag is Magic in 2019. And multiple children's books about drag were published in 2020. These efforts build upon the foundational work of many lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender LGBT youth organizations like San Francisco's Queens of the Castro, which has explored drag with high school students for the last decade. Then the goal was to queer the Castro. On a, on the, they absolutely tell you that. The goal is this political objective. In this article, we explore the pedagogical contributions of a program called Drag Queen Story Hour as a form of queer imagining in an early childhood context. Through this program, drag artists have channeled their penchant for playfully, quote, reading each other to filth into different forms of literacy. I'm going to assume literacy means political literacy like Freire. And let's just go back and read that fun part again. Drag artists have channeled their penchant for playfully reading each other to filth Reading each other to filth. First paragraph. Into different forms of literacy, promoting storytelling as integral to queer and trans communities, as well as positioning queer and transcultural forms as valuable components of early childhood education. Let's put some dot 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 in this sentence. Drag artists have channeled their penchant for playfully reading each other into filth as a valuable component of early childhood education. Reading young children into filth is the goal of Drag Queen Story Hour stated in the first paragraph of this academic paper. Have I put a fine enough point on this to get it into your head what these people are doing in groomer schools? That none of this is as the attorney general for the state of Michigan just said about bringing fun into the classroom. She said, Dana something starts with an N, Nesser, something like this, said, the attorney general of Michigan just said the other day, Every school should have drag queen story hour, should have drag queens in it, because they're fun. I think it doesn't say that they're fun here. I think it says drag artists have channeled their penchant for playfully reading each other into filth as a valuable component of early childhood education. Reading young children into filth. Not fun, Madam Attorney General. We are guided by the following question, they say. 
all in italics. What might Drag Queen Story Hour offer educators as a way of bringing queer ways of knowing and being into the education of young children? Not fun, Madam Attorney General. What might Drag Queen Story Hour offer educators as a way of bringing queer ways of knowing and being into the education of young children? So that's the stated goal of this. Contrary to what every friggin' Democrat defending this crap is saying, whether online or whether from an attorney general's office. The emergence of Drag Queen Story Hour coincides with a heightened visibility of LGBT people in general and drag performances in particular, intensifying critical questions about the commodification of queer cultures around the world. Now, if you didn't catch what that is, this is almost unbelievable. We'll hear this later in the paper. We'll come back to this. The concern that the authors have here is not the sexual exploitation of children, which is blatant because that's their objective. It is the possible capitalist commodification of queer culture through paying drag people to do this because more and more of it's happening. So drag is getting commodified in this process and the capitalists are going to make money off of it and capture it. And drag is going to lose its queer authenticity because it's getting commodified by capitalism. That's their concern. They're saying that from the first sentence of the second paragraph. For example, the commercial success of the television show RuPaul's Drag Race raised the international profile of drag, drawing what seems to be an increasingly mainstream audience. Still, visibly queer space is increasingly hard to find, and queer and trans communities face dangerous realities. Gay bars all over the United States are closing their doors as historically queer neighborhoods gentrify, and community building increasingly moves online. Despite the dominant portrayal of issues like marriage and military inclusion as the principal goals of the LGBT civil rights movement, queer and trans activists are working to draw public attention to queer poverty, violence against queer trans people of color, and anti-LGBT governmental policies. The contradictions are manifest, even as they progress. So the dialectic progresses. Within this complex political landscape, they tell us, Drag Queen Story Hour seems to uniquely thread the needle between queer activism and broad cultural acceptance. That is, Drag Queen Story Hour creates spaces for young children and families to immerse themselves in LGBT-themed stories, and does so in ways that seem to genuinely reflect queer ways of being and relating, rather than as a neatly marketed product. We believe that this makes Drag Queen Story Hour worthy of closer study. We argue that the program creates a pathway into the imaginative, imaginative, messy, and rule-breaking aspects of drag for children without necessarily watering down queer cultures. Isn't that great? Drag Queen Story Hour resists the commodification problem so far because it's so authentically queer and because you're working with children and families. By the way, we're going to redefine family by the end of this paper, as you will see. Drag Queen Story Hour, a her story. So we have to stop, because herstory is not a friggin' word. H-E-R-S-T-O-R-Y. Herstory, not history. Because her and his, right? Yeah, obviously. Even though the root of history is historia, which has absolutely nothing to do with his or her, it's in another friggin' language that doesn't use his and her as pronouns, we have to have a herstory. A herstory, so we don't reproduce patriarchy and himsters or whatever through his Tory, his story. History is his story, not her story. Isn't that fabulous? Fuck these people. 
Drag Queen's story hour grew from queer author Michelle T's personal desire to connect her toddler with queer culture. Alright, groomer schools. Check. Box checked. Done. That's where it came from. That's their her story of this. Drag Queen's story hour grew from queer author Michelle T's personal desire to connect her toddler with queer culture. Groomers. Because now they have to connect other people's toddlers with queer culture. Groomers. As the outgoing executive director of the San Francisco literary nonprofit Radar Productions, which, by the way, has some of the first tweets about Drag Queen Story Hour on Twitter from 2015, T conceived of the program in 2015, which was launched under the leadership of incoming executive director Julie Delgado Lopera and managing director Virgie Tovar. Soon after, Drag Queen Story Hour was replicated by established organizations in DIY-style events around the world. Most have taken place in libraries, schools, bookstores, and other community spaces. Readings have happened in dozens of locales from major cities like New York, Mexico City, and Tokyo to smaller ones like Cleveland, Tennessee. What the hell? Cleveland, Tennessee? And San Marcos, Texas. Oh, Drag Queen Story Hour kind of started. It didn't start. It started in San Francisco. Drag Queen Story Hour has been in Texas for a long time. Just like the thing in Dallas where they had the thing in the bar and all the kids and the big story that they're trying to now say that our friend Libs of TikTok is a uh, domestic terrorist or a stochastic terrorist and an extremist because having put the flyer out that they publicly put out themselves and promoted it, people showed up to resist that this was going on because it's literally illegal. Remember, that was the thing where they had the sign on the wall that said, it isn't going to lick itself, and I licked it so it's mine, with children in the room with drag queens doing strip dances in front of them in a 21 and up bar, gay bar, with children. Many coordinate under, and the many drag queen story hours, incorporate, or sorry, coordinate under an, an incorporated nonprofit organization they don't mention what that is, though others operate independently. So I told you, it's not organic. Many coordinate under an incorporated nonprofit organization. Mm -hmm. Like most drag performance, there is no consistent formula for Drag Queen Story Hour. No rules. Just right. Yet there are similarities across events. Most, see figure one, which is a picture of Lil Miss Hot Mess scaring the shit out of children in drag in a classroom. Most feature one to three drag performers. The overwhelming majority are drag queens, but there are occasional kings or other gender-bending performers. Drag queen story hour performers read a handful of children's books and lead children in movement and craft-based activities, like making wands or tiaras. Book selections often include queer and or trans characters, gender transgressive themes, or narratives about not fitting in and finding one's voice. Almost like you'd want to induce vulnerability in children about not fitting in and finding your true voice, and then use that to shuttle them into a queer identity politics cult by presenting other stories with queer and trans characters and gender transgressive themes, which are generative themes to engage in a Freyrian brainwashing session to groom your kids into exactly that. Almost like that. That might be, a, I don't know, a drag pedagogy, which is literally the title of this paper. Some translate drag's, drag's penchant for taboo into kids' ideas of silly topics. Hmm, let me linger on that for a second, right? Some translate 
drags penchant for taboo into kids' ideas of silly topics. Let's just make it funny and silly sex stuff. Let's just make you laugh and play. Like they say, like making a mess or potty time. I don't want a drag queen talking to children about anything coming out of their ass. I just don't want that. Or their genitals. I just don't want that. I don't want that. I don't know anybody who is sane who wants that. And let's just make it fun and silly. We'll make it silly. Drag queen's penchant for taboo. Like, I don't know, adult children relationships. Cross-generational relationships, as Gail Rubin phrased them. Translate drag's penchant for taboo to kids' ideas of silly topics. Sick. Groomer school sick. Occasionally, a queen performs a lip-sync song, uh, a lip-sync of songs from a children's film. Went over their trust. Very Pied Piper there. At many events, organizers invite kids to create their own drag name or to study feminist icons to decodify drag for themselves or study feminist icons using Drag Queen Story Hour's self-published Dragativity book. A few cities have expanded programming to include bilingual readings. You hear that's That's in Spanish. That's in Spanish. They're going to query your kids in Spanish. I wish I could remember enough Spanish to tell you in Spanish what they're doing to your children. I hope somebody does. I hope it gets out in Spanish language media. My Spanish, no está bien. I can't do it anymore. I can't tell you this in Spanish. Bilingual readings, events geared specifically toward neurodivergent children and others with disabilities. Okay, so go queer up the autistic kids. Go queer up the special needs kids. Awesome. Or programs for teenagers that feature makeup and performative workshops. Now, when they talk about neurodivergent children like autistic kids and others with disabilities, uh, autistic kids, by the way, are pretty easily, you know, kind of pulled into this gender dysphoria feeling, etc. And others with disabilities. Remember just earlier in the paragraph where they said narratives that they're going to groom people through narratives about not fitting in and finding one's voice, which are big themes with neurodivergent and, and uh, disabled children. They're latching into that. They're a parasite connecting into that to groom neurodivergent kids, especially autistic kids who don't have the clearest understanding of, um, you know, social experience, especially as children. It's very difficult to grow up autistic like that and to figure this out. So take advantage of it with drag queens. Drag queen story hour events have received widespread media coverage and been sponsored by a variety of institutions. See, it's not organic. The media is supporting it. It's a support from many institutions. And as you heard, it's clearly targeting vulnerable children to queer them. One of the papers on the screen, by the way, that it suggests as recommended related research is queer verb pedagogy. Queer with the parentheses V period. Like queer is a verb. To queer. To queer your disabled child, to queer your neurodivergent autistic child, to take advantage of so freaking sick and evil, these groomers. But the program, they tell us, has not been without controversy. No kidding. Can you believe I didn't swear there? I can't believe I didn't swear there. A few city councils have condemned the use of public space for story hours. No kidding that the state, the city, the government shouldn't be endorsing this? No kidding. Librarians and queens have received death threats. Well, you have to play the wound collector game. I don't 
think that people should get death threats and I don't think we should have death threats, but I'm not actually surprised. Like, are you, you're provoking kids with sexuality in a completely disgusting and dangerous way. This isn't cute and it's not funny. It's manipulation. You're tapping into vulnerabilities. You're playing around with kids and their sense of silly with lots of glitter and overblown makeup and fun, fun, fun. They're even going to talk about how the drag queen's more fun than the regular teacher. Pied Piper style. Parents are going to be pissed. Like, you can't make... I get it. Don't make death threats. Don't do not do it. Because it's wrong, but also because they use it against you. They've wound collected. But are you, is anybody... Is any sane person surprised? Drag performers, they say, associated with drag queen story hours have been mocked and condemned in popular conservative media. Oh, yeah. Get used to that. That's coming. You're going to get a lot more of that. Oh, no. Drag performers associated with Drag Queen Story Hour have been mocked and condemned in popular conservative media. Well, that's going to spread, baby. It's going to be in every media except what you've captured. Because what you're doing is evil, and it's ugly, and it's horrifying. Several story hours have been canceled due to credible threats of violence. Don't be violent, but it's not surprising. You're making a provocation... Let's talk about mid-level violence, because that's what this is. I talked about political uh, what was it? Political warfare a while back. I, when I went on Tim Pool the first time, I was like, political warfare is the most important concept you've never heard of. One of the tools, this is what Antifa does, this is what they all do, this is what Black Lives Matter did, this is what all of these provocations are, is mid-level violence. Dry Queen Story Hour is mid-level violence. It's mid-level cultural violence. Mid-level violence, you could say it's mid-level provocation or whatever you want to call it. If you don't want to call this violence. Mid-level violence is the, I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you game. And then when you either have to submit to this and look weak because it's at the mid-level of violence. It's not actual violence. I didn't hit you. I just didn't touch you. I didn't touch you and didn't touch you. Finger in your face. Never touched you. Didn't touch you. I'm doing a clear provocation, but it's at a low enough level because it's mid-level that Either you just have to accept it and you lose and you weaken yourself. In other words, you just let the drag queen be in the classroom. That's your one losing option. Or you overreact and credible threats of violence are made because obviously the school's not going to... There would be no violence if the adults that run the schools, if the adults that are in law enforcement, if the adults that are in any domain anywhere would step in and say, don't do this. You cannot do this. This is not acceptable. People only get pushed to violence when there's no recourse left. And this is how the mid-level violence game works. And this is the game that they're playing with you. They are provoking and provoking and provoking and provoking. And if you don't do anything, they win. And if you do anything, you overreacted. They make you look bad. They write this. Drag performers have been mocked and condemned in proper media. City councils have have condemned use of public space. Librarians have and queens have received death threats. There has been credible threats of violence. In a few cases, they say armed protesters have shown up to libraries. Then you overreacted and you lose again. You look like you're this overbearing jerk. You look like a fascist, which is how they're going to paint you. This is the communist. This is the communist provocation strategy until they have absolute power. Mid-level violence, and then it, you either, as they say, cuck yourself, since we're reading a paper like this, you 
fold and give in like most of the Republican establishment and let them steamroll you and you're weak. And every time you do it, you lose more and more of your credibility and you weaken yourself. You demoralize yourself. You demoralize your followers. You demoralize your supporters. You demoralize the people depending on you and you weaken and weaken and weaken and weaken and weaken. Or you say no and they frame it out as a fascist overreaction or you actually overreact and they really take that one all the way to the bank. This is the mid-level violence game. This is the game that they're playing. Drag Queen Story Hour is a mid-level violence provocation. You have to understand that that's what it is. It is a strategic provocation. They're not sending strippers because that would be too far. They're sending drag queens because it's fun in the words of Attorney General of Michigan. Many of these protests, they say, have been instigated by a small group of far-right conservative organizations and media personalities. A wild scapegoat appears eager to position Drag Queen Story Hour as the new face of long-standing culture wars, echoing tired homo and transphobic talking points. See, they're just being homo and transphobic. They're homophobic, transphobic. They're just doing that. And so then Merrick Garland, as Attorney General of the United States, will step out and say that you're domestic terrorists for resisting the mid-level violence that not a single adult in the room that should be doing it will resist. The correct way to deal with this is you start firing the people who aren't dealing with it. You don't violence them. You fire them. You take, and they're going to whine, and you fire more of them. And if they, whoever whines, you fire those people too. This backlash, they always say that they're gonna, there's going to be a backlash. That's what they do. They don't, it's evil because they are provoking the backlash, and then they use the backlash against you when it comes, and everybody kind of knows it. This backlash gestures toward the fraught nature of connecting kids to overtly queer content. Particularly in politically conservative regions. Let's just read that part again. This backlash gestures toward the fraught nature of connecting kids to overtly queer content. Just don't do that. That's a mid level violence provocation. Don't do it. But they're groomers and they're communists, so they have to. It is their mechanism. It is their modus operandi. This is no different than Antifa. This is no different than all the stuff from Black Lives Matter, where they know just how far to go where they're going to be able to get away with it with the amount of support that they have from the existing establishment. Provoke, 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 provoke. Demoralize the opposition. And anything that anybody dares to stand up, that's a lone wolf, an extremist, a radical, a lunatic, or whatever it is, it has to be stopped because fascism's around the corner. That's the game they're playing, and they're good at it. Still, by the way, the victims are your kids, who every time this is still happening and it's been allowed to happen, are being groomed. This is how it works. And they're being groomed to be destabilized, to divorce from their families, to divorce from their religions, to divorce from their nation and culture so they can have a new one installed, which is going to be utopian in nature, except unfortunately, these people are the weirdos. So they're the ones that are going to be excluded, locked down or killed after the revolution because they're not very useful. Remember those useless eaters that uh, all Noah Harari is always talking about? Do you think that a psychologically broken queer person is useful to the regime after it has absolute power? No, of course it's not. China has power. How are they doing with their gay stuff? Oh, not that good. Not that good. That's where it's going. So they're going to break your kid, use your kid, and then discard your kid. Why? Because Hegel told us. Believe it or not, Hegel told us. Hegel told us way back. I think it was in the philosophy of the right, but I'd have to look again. Way back in the early 1800s, history uses people and then discards them. They're just your children, though. And the drag queens are the ones using them in groomer schools. Conceptualizing drag pedagogy, the next section. 
We take the public interest in Drag Queen Story Hour as a starting point to highlight the generative pedagogical work that drag may offer to children. I already described the Freire thing. I'm just going to highlight by saying it here. In other words, they're going to use Drag Queen to create a generative situation a, to do a Freirean brainwashing session on your kids. The way that's going to play out is they're going to use the drag queen to bring up the themes. When the themes come up, they got to have a, a discussion. When the discussion comes up, they're going to talk about marginalization and oppression. They're going to codify, then decodify, and problematize, and then link your kids to it by helping them find their voice, being the outsider, blah, 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 blah. Many elements of Drag Queen Story Hour are common to early childhood schooling, bright colors, music, art, and imaginative play. There is an, an adult teacher leading a classroom of young students. What is different, though, is that the teacher is a drag queen. They said that with a straight face. Many elements of Drag Queen Story Hour are common to early childhood schooling. It's, also, it's all basically the same. What's different, though, is the teacher is a drag queen. She breaks. She. 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 Not she. No, drag queen. By definition, man dressed as woman. Not she. Not she. By definition, not a drag queen. If it was a she, if we accepted their crap, it would be a trans person, not a drag queen. If we don't accept their crap, it's still a guy. She. No. She breaks the limiting... Let's just fix it. No, we have to do... We have to be... We have to be... We have to be faithful to the text. I want to say he so bad. She, the drag queen, the man, pretending performatively, as they said, to be a woman in front of the children breaks the limiting stereotype of a teacher. She is loud, extravagant, and playful. She encourages... Remember, it's a man dressed as a woman. She encourages children to think for themselves and even to break the rules. Is that what you want for your kids? To break the rules? She, it's a man dressed as a woman, is the exponential product of Miss Fizzle and Bob the Drag Queen. She is a queer teacher. Queers in italics. <sighs> to the unimaginative adult, which sigh, that's written there in italics, set off by dashes, which sigh, describes most of us. To the unimaginative adult. So listen, you don't go along with this. You're unimaginative. Most people are. It's a problem with you. It's not a problem with the program. It's you. You're unimaginative. To the unimaginative adult, which, sigh, describes most of us, it might seem that the world of drag and the world of children are impossibly distant from one another. You have to be more imaginative. You have to imagine a new potentiality of being. You have to break free of the, as Mark said, the limitations on your range as a subjective as a, as a conscious subject so that you can create the new world to the unimaginative adult it might seem that the world of drag and the world of children are impossibly distant from one another they should be like you know there should be not just distance but bars and barbed wire and guards with rifles there should be Yet, their meeting has left many audiences wondering why they hadn't considered it before. Drag Queen Story Hour co-founder Julie Delgado Lopera notes this overlooked affinity in an interview. Quote, I think generally queers are not mixed with kids, especially drag queens. It's a kid's world to be very imaginative. Co-founder Michelle T. also comments, quote, They're both very funny and see humor in the world, and for drag queens, the idea is about pushing limits and pushing boundaries. So drag queens push limits and boundaries, so it pushes boundaries and limits to put them in front of children. So, oh, obviously. 
Such generalizations may not always apply, but these comments lead us to ask, what if we took play, defiance, and imagination seriously as forms of knowledge production? If we celebrated the convergence of children and drag queens, what kinds of potentialities might their collaboration hold? If we celebrated the convergence of children and drag queens, what kinds of potentialities might their collaboration hold? I recommend prison! That's a potentiality of your collaboration of children and drag queens. Prison. That's a, that's a potentiality. It should be an actuality, actually, to use your language against you. We write this article from the standpoint of an education scholar and former elementary educator, Harper Keenan, and a doctoral student in media studies who is a drag queen story hour queen and organizer, Lil Miss Hot Mess. Lil Miss Hot Mess. Lil Miss Hot Mess. Given these positions, we make no effort to hide our bias. We are both supporters of this program, and Little Miss Hot Mess is involved in its leadership. Our purpose, then, is to make use of our unique positions as scholar-practitioners to highlight the pedagogical elements of Dry Queen's Story Hour that might not be immediately obvious to its audiences. Combined with our experiential knowledge, see, they're Gnostic. They know more than you. They know. They're the experts. We have to listen to the experts. This is the science. It's in the academic literature. There's a study. Combined with our experiential knowledge of working with children and living in queer trans communities, where drag is often a celebrated tradition, we incorporate theories drawn from the academic fields of education, performance, and queer and trans studies to consider how drag queens and children might work together, however fleetingly, to promote a spirit of creative inquiry and world-making. Hi, Marks. Good to see you. We propose that Drag Queen Story Offer offers a particular kind of queer framework, what we call drag pedagogy, for teaching and learning that extends beyond traditional approaches to LGBT curricular inclusion. The themes within drag pedagogy, applicable beyond the context of drag itself, move away from vocabulary lessons and the token inclusion of LGBT heroes to begin to engage deeper understanding of queer cultures and envision new modes of being altogether. New modes of being. We can envision them together. We're not just going to learn queer vocabulary. We're not just going to have token inclusion of LGBT heroes. We're going to deep. We're engage in deeper understandings of queer cultures by having a drag queen in front of your kids, leading them to find their queer voice. So they can live queerly was the abstract. We emphasize that drag pedagogy resists didactic instruction and is not prescriptive. Instead, it artfully invites children into building communities that are more hospitable to queer knowledge and experience. So you can't tell people how it's going to go or what it's going to be. It has to be open-ended. It has to be free. You have to just let things happen. You have to break the rules with a man dressed as a sexualized woman in front of your children talking about sexuality in early childhood education. Before we sashay into the world of drag queens and children, it says that, let's get a few things clear or queer. Firstly, quote, drag is sometimes erroneously conflated with, quote, trans. Remember when we were doing the she thing a minute ago? They're not the same, and they know it. As a genderqueer drag performer scholar and a trans scholar, one of each, we are acutely aware and tired of this problem. It happens in both conservative and liberal discourses. This conflation has led to occasional tensions even within queer and trans communities. Thus, we wish to be explicit. These terms are not synonymous. However, quote drag and quote trans overlap. Sorry, I put my, my inflection wrong there. However, quote drag and quote trans overlap 
given that some drag artists are trans. See, some drag artists are trans, but not all drag artists are trans, so drag and trans aren't the same thing, but technically they're not. We could get into the whole transvestite thing like Chris Rufo's trying to do right now. I don't know if that's going to work. Eh. Drag is bad enough. I don't know that we actually have to do that. Chris seems to think we have to. Whatever. While drag generally refers to a kind of consciously artistic performance intended for an audience, in contrast, trans people do not primarily seek to entertain. No, they seek to gratify themselves as vulnerable narcissists. Whoops, said that part out loud. Yet there is historical slippage between these two categories, especially as language has evolved over the past century. Many of the leaders most celebrated within the early trans movement describe themselves as drag queens and or as, quote, street queens or, quote, transvestites. That's what Chris Rufo is kind of tapping into, although I don't think he knew about the historical part, including uh, Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson. One cannot meaningfully address trans history and struggle without engaging the history of drag. However, a full, examine, a full examination of those historical relationships is beyond the scope of this article. For our purposes, suffice it to say that the practice of drag and otherwise refashioning gender long predate the current terminology used to describe human experience. That would be trans. We expect that readers can make sense of this complicated terrain. It's not complicated, it's bullshit. After all, as might be said at a drag show, this is not amateur night. <laughs> Sashay right into not amateur night with your children. So bring your notes and put on those glasses, everybody, because this requires reading on multiple levels. They're not smart. This is crap. God, multiple levels. What they mean is they're writing coded language. They're telling people more than they're actually saying, which requires somebody like me to read it to tell you, which I shouldn't even have to do, but I have to do. In what follows, we begin by addressing legacies of schooling and its role in teaching children about gender norms and other aspects of personhood. We offer a brief background on drag, analyzing it not only in terms of its gender disruptions, but also its own vernacular pedagogies and community engagement. That's putting a lot of big words into drag has ways that it does things. It has a culture of its own, if you will. In the second half of the article, we describe the kinds of knowledge that drag pedagogy can share with children of all ages. Of all ages. Of all ages. Five and up. Three and up. What are we talking about here? We focus on five interrelated themes. Play as praxis. Aesthetic transformation. Strategic defiance. Camp and its relationship to stigma. That's the camp aesthetic and embodied kinship. That's that kind of the camp is that kind of sarcastic gay thing that it's associated with. Anyway. Ultimately, we suggest the drag pedagogy offers one model for learning not simply about queer lives, but how to live queerly in italics. And we're living for it. It really says that. It really says that. This is an academic paper. This is the kind of things that we, when we wrote the Grievance Studies papers, threw in because we're like, no academic paper would actually publish this garbage. And they do. They do. They absolutely do. This is a curriculum journal. Curriculum inquiry. Schooling children. Scripting childhood. All right. So they think that what's happening if we have childhood innocence or if we have regular schools that aren't queer schools or Freirian schools is that we're scripting childhood. We're teaching children to follow a script of society. See, they're not the groomers, you are. They're not the groomers, the schools that exist are. The whole society is grooming children. The system that exists is grooming children. The norms and expectations of society are grooming children to be normal. 
and they have to break through that. That's the objective of queer theory, and the objective especially of queer theory where it intersects with education. Early childhood, early childhood education, early childhood education. But they want to undo the scripting or actually consciously seize the means of the scripting of childhood to redirect it in a different direction, which is theirs. The Institute, it's just your kids. It's just your kids. I mean, what could go wrong? Drag queens are going to re-script their childhood for them. What could go wrong? It's just your kids. So they can live queerly. It's just your kids. The institution of public schooling was founded in part as a way of maintaining nation states. (laughs) Oh, Lord. Isn't that going to get deep? The whole system. Public schooling was founded as a way of maintaining nation states. Thus, you see, as opposed to a global citizenry consciousness or whatever. Thus, the professional vision of educators is often shaped to reproduce the state's normative vision of its ideal citizenry. See, American schools might make American citizens, or, uh, I don't know, Oklahoma schools might make Oklahomans, or Tennessee schools might make people with values of Tennessee. You know, things like that. That's a problem. They have a vision hidden inside of their ideal citizenry, and they, they... the grooming's already happening. This is what they're saying. And the existing state grooms kids to be ideal in the sense of what the state wants. That's a problem. That's a prison that they're throwing people into. What if they don't want to be like that? In effect, schooling functions as a way to straighten the child into a kind of captive alignment with the, with the current parameters of that vision. Everything I just said into a kind of captive alignment, a Gnostic prison, with the current parameters of that vision. Put differently, the design of schooling often serves as a kind of trellis that trains children away from social divergence in order to, quote, grow up, to become adults who are viewed as socially and economically productive. Hi, Marx. So what what they, they are saying is that and they put straightened in italics there, is that schooling exists to groom children into being productive, socially and economically productive adults who, quote, grow up. That's in their quotes. They put that in quotes. And it's training or grooming the children to be ideal citizens within whatever nation state they live in, straightening them out to be that way with the pun on straight. You have to read at multiple levels. Put on your reading glasses, guys. In contrast, Catherine Bond Stockton suggests a metaphor of queer sideways growth that is possible for all children, regardless of gender or sexuality. This framework, which counters dominant thinking about childhood development, is not directed toward a predetermined endpoint of growing up, but rather functions as an irregularized broadening of children's own interests, abilities, and eccentricities on their own terms. So if your kid says, I don't know, maybe I have this mental disorder that I learned about on TikTok last week, we're going to encourage that. That's their own interest, abilities, and eccentricities on their own terms. Or maybe if they say, I don't know, sometimes I feel like I want to wear a dress. And you say, well, let's broaden your interest, abilities, and eccentricity on your own term and cut your willy off. It doesn't direct you toward a predetermined endpoint of growing up. Why would you want them to grow up? You want them to remain moldable, groomable children for their whole life. Why? Because, oh, society for nation-states purposes are already grooming grooming children. They're grooming them to be ideal citizens. They're grooming them to be socially and economically productive. That's a prison. That's captive alignment within the current parameters of that vision. We have to break them free on their own terms. 
and an adult and a child, hey, don't you feel like, you know, this makes you feel better? Doesn't Miss Sassy Pants or whatever the hell her name is, Little Miss Hot Mass, make you feel even more fun and better? Isn't it silly when she comes in? Isn't that so fun? Everybody should go read the Pied Piper again. Here, they say it is important to differentiate between queer as an identity that individuals can claim for themselves and queer as an an analytic. No, it's not, but let's do it anyway. Many people, including both authors, use the word queer to describe ourselves. I bet you do. Although queerness refuses crystallized meaning, our use of the term in this article generally refers to our desire to practice an embodied political resistance. Oh. Oh. Although queerness refuses crystallized meaning, our use of of the term in this article generally refers to our desire to practice an embodied political resistance to confining constructs of gender and sexuality, as they are produced by the institutions and social relations that govern our lives. That's what they mean by queer. Hmm. Okay. That's what they want to bring to your children so they can live queerly. Our desire to practice an embodied, meaning using their body particularly as the tool, political resistance to confining constructs of gender and sexuality. That's what they want to bring to your children. As they are produced by not themselves, but by somebody else trying to hold them down in a prison of their own be- of, of, of their own creating. The institutions and social relations that govern our lives. And we don't call you, I mean, you guys call yourselves queer, but we don't call you queer. We call you perverts. We call you groomers, because that's what you are. As an analytic frame, however, queer is not limited to the individual person. Queer theory can be used to examine how often impossible standards of normalcy are formed. See, it's a war on the normal, right? They're often impossible. Not only through institutional categorizations of gender and sexuality, but also through social expectations produced through the, res- the racialized structures of capitalism, high marks, that are inextricably intertwined with that hierarchy. And we cite even, uh, no, not here, sorry. Throughout this paper, we find citations of um, Kimberly Crenshaw from mapping the margins with her intersectionality, but not here, not this time. Okay, let me pause on another phrase here for you that you I need you to understand and hear. Um, not the racialized structures of capitalism, blah, blah, blah. The often impossible standards of normalcy. See, if they're impossible, then they're not fair. They're unjust. And if you can convince somebody that, you know, maybe they're feeling vulnerable, maybe they're feeling miserable, maybe they're feeling sad, but that's because the standards being put on them are actually impossible. It wasn't fair in the first place. They had no chance. It was impossible. Then you can create a cycle of vulnerability and then you can tell them that the point, as Marx put, for example, in his critique of Hegel's philosophy of the right, is to throw off the conditions that make something like religion as an opiate necessary in the first place, that throw off the conditions of society that make you have to cope in one way or another. The Marxism here is really clear, by the way. Building in part from queer theory and trans studies, they say, queer and trans pedagogy seek to actively destabilize, mm-hmm, seek to actively destabilize the normative function of schooling through transformative education, like transformative SCL. But they also actively seek to destabilize, period. Not just the normative function of schooling, but your children. That's what Hannah Dyer said. The goal of queer education is not to create stable LGBTQ identities, she said, but to make sure they stay fluid, not to make stable identities, 
but destabilized identities. No big deal, just your kids. This is a fundamentally different orientation than movements towards the inclusion or assimilation of LGBT people. It's not what you think. They are not, it's not what they're lying on television and telling you. It's not what you think. It's not just about fun. It's not also, you'll hear, it's just, you just don't want people to accept gay people. It has nothing to do with gay acceptance. They just said so. This is a fundamentally different orientation than movements toward the inclusion or assimilation of LGBT people into existing structures of school and society. They don't want LGBT people to be uh, included and assimilated into existing structures of school and society. They want them to be queer, political orientation to disrupt normalcy. They just said that. This is the same where Freire says that in the Pedagogy of the Oppressed that the goal of educating is to teach the people that they're dependent, but not to teach them how to take responsibility to climb out of their dependency, because then they would escape and just integrate and reproduce the system that oppresses. No, you have to teach them to be in solidarity of marginalization to overthrow the existing system, just like Marx. This is a fundamentally different orientation than movements toward the inclusion or assimilation of LGBT people into the existing structures of school and society. Fundamentally different. It's not about gay acceptance. It was never about gay acceptance. There was a gay acceptance movement, a gay civil rights movement. It's already been referenced in this paper. And the queer agenda has always been separate from it. And we need to be clear. We need to understand the differences. We need to understand how the queer agenda has used the LGBT civil rights movement and is using the people as human shields. And they will say so later in this paper that they're doing so. But that it's not doing that. It's not a civil rights movement. It is a fundamentally different orientation than, say, civil rights movements toward the inclusion or assimilation of LGBT people into the existing structures of school and society. They don't want gay acceptance. They don't want gay equality. They want agitated, destabilized queer activists living queerly. And it's just your kids using Drag Queen Story Hour to do it as a grooming mechanism in schools using the Freire and Groomer Schools pedagogy with the Drag Queen as the generative program. As a practical example in the early childhood classroom, consider the common practice of sorting children into groups of boys and girls. An inclusion stance might allow children to decide for themselves whether they would like to be in a boys or a girls group whereas a transformative approach might work with children to inquire as to how boyness and girlness are given meaning, the limits of these, cat these two categories, and how people might organize themselves differently. Very different program. It's not about accepting people who are different. It's about challenging the very system. Throughout history and into the present, tremendous effort has been devoted in, uh, to managing how children understand and embody gender. Citing Eve Sedgwick here, we'll read more from her later, total Gnostic, total lunatic. From their inception, institutions within the modern nation-state, the medical clinic, the courthouse, the asylum, the prison, and the school among them have established and policed the borders of gender, citing Michel Foucault's history of sexuality here kind of the primordial queer theorist, because he was a BDSM-loving gay man who wanted to play with boys, and he needed to challenge social structures that didn't allow him to do that. So he wrote a bunch of cock, cock and bull uh, philosophy that enabled it, and it became queer theory, which they're doing to your kids with drag queens in school now, some 50 years later. 
Here, we emphasize that within the realities of our lives, gender never exists in isolation. Instead, the sets of lines drawn around living minds and bodies intersect with the countless lines drawn across a living world by centuries of global imperialism and colonialism, a wild scapegoat appears, enabled by ideologies of white supremacy. They cite the Combahee River Collective, and Kimberly Crenshaw here, by the way, and Angela Davis. The Combahee River Collective, that's the manifesto that we read as the true history, the true Marxist history of Marxist history of intersectionality. That's a podcast you can go look up. To state it plainly, within the historical context of the USA and Western Europe, the institutional management of gender has been used as a way of maintaining racist and capitalist modes of reproduction. Re is in parentheses, so it's production and reproduction at the same time. Hi, Marx. Good to see you again. Trans studies scholars, no scholar, sorry, Jules Gill Peterson in 2015 argued that within this context, childhood childhood is positioned as a form of, quote, futures trading, wherein categories of human sorting, such as race, class, gender, and sexuality, play the role of, quote, economic coefficients that produce material consequence for the trajectory of children's lives. So this is how you update Marx's economic material stuff into the identity politics range. See, childhood is just futures trading. You're just betting on what the child's going to become and you use different, you know, economic coefficients like race, class, gender, sexuality to guess at what the likely outcomes of the children will be. But you're just doing a futures trading game. You know, I mean, it does make sense to think of things like Harvard and Yale and these other Ivy League institutions as literally as kind of that, as a hedge fund betting on on young adults, but um, because that's actually how they operate. But this is ridiculous. Childhood is positioned as a form of futures trading. Okay, so now we've got another greeting to Marx and an updated set of language. Although individuals' experiences are profoundly complex, they tell us schooling often categorizes people in ways that train each of our ways of being into compliance with an inflexible, quote, script. See, we're already grooming people so that we can win in a future trading game, which is capitalizing upon who we're making our kids to be, because they're friggin' Marxists. That script, you see, kids can't be who they want to be because we have to bet on them and groom them into being something that's going to be productive that we can have a better future with. We have to do that but not a better future in what Marxists would consider real or actual terms, liberated terms or utopian terms, which they'll talk about. No, 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 no. Better future in terms of what the existing society wants. See, you and I are selfish, so we raise our kids to be like you and I so that they'll reproduce a system that's benefiting us so that we can be benefited. See? We're grooming them into being that, so they have to groom otherwise. That script, they tell us, which is enforced through formal institutions as well as through social interaction, operates on multiple levels. The script of gender teaches the public not only what gender is, in some essential sense, setting up a binary between womanhood and manhood, setting up a binary, setting up, setting up, somebody did it. It's not nature. It's not that men and women are different. Society set up a binary that gets reified into womanhood and manhood, to use the term from George Lukács, another Marxist analyst. But that some gendered ways of being are acceptable and others are not. That's queer theory. The script of gender teaches the public not only what gender is in some essential sense, but that some gendered ways of being are acceptable and others are not. In the USA, for example, many people learn that the most valued boy will be white, engage in rough and tumble play with other boys that will toughen him up and straighten him out, 
allowing him to mature into a man who wears a suit and tie, makes a lot of money, enters into a sexually monogamous marriage with a woman, buys a home, and has enough but not too many children. In other words, a script that may begin with gendered shapes, uh, sorry, a script that may begin with gender shapes how individuals are taught to understand their expected roles in society in ways that extend far beyond gender alone. See, we're grooming little boys to believe that the most valued boy, the person you aspire to be, is white. First thing they say. They engage in rough and tumble play with other boys to toughen him up and straighten him out so he won't be gay. Allow him to mature into a man who wears a suit and a tie instead of, I guess, sweatpants or uh, rainbow pants or drag. Makes a lot of money. Oh, no. Enters into a sexually monogamous marriage with a woman. Oh, no. Buys a home. Oh, no. And has enough but not too many children. Oh, no. This is the things they hate. Almost no one can fully conform to the script of gender all the time. It's so hard. Despite their efforts, public institutions and other producers of gendered borders cannot comprehensively account for the complexity of human existence. Okay, so now we defer back to what the gay civil rights movement did. Gay acceptance. Okay, you're gay and you're still a man. You're a lesbian and that doesn't take away one drop from your womanness. That was actually the message. You're fully human, you're fully a man, or you're fully a woman. In who you are, being attracted to another man doesn't make you less of a man, it makes you a gay man, and you can explore your masculinity in that sense. Being a woman who's attracted to a woman doesn't make you less of a woman, it makes you a woman who is a lesbian. And you can explore femininity and womanhood in that sense. And we're going to accept people for who they are. That's gay acceptance. Not here. Almost no one can fully conform to the script, a.k.a. prison, Gnostic prison, of gender all the time. We can't possibly account for all the differences, so we're just going to throw them all out. That's the queer agenda. Yet, they say, it is also virtually impossible to completely go off script. Trans and gender nonconforming people, particularly those who are multiply, multi multiply marginalized, are, with disturbing frequency, violently scapegoated for breaking gender's rules and revealing the limits of those rules, as if it's just arbitrary social rules, as if that's all that's going on. God, these people are so frustrating. That scene in What is a Woman with Matt Walsh talking to the professor from the University of Tennessee who says that truth is violence. You can hear it. The one that's like the other pro professor, was she like a dean of the medical school at Brown or something? It's like, do chickens cry? You can hear it. That they, Those people aren't aberrations. That's the mainstream within this queer theory because they think everything is arbitrary social rules being imposed on people, and that's what creates people. We're the playthings of the discourses or the playthings of the power structures of society as if those things are pagan gods that shape us into who we are. And they have this weird pagan religion where we have to not only identify those gods but fight against those gods because they're Gnostics and they believe that those gods imprison us in a world of their creating, and if we can identify them and kill them, we can get out of the prison and enter into the Garden of Eden, which was our birthright, because they're Gnostics. This is their religion. It's really a religion. It's just dressed up in sociological language. You could call it a religion of sociology, but that's a slant against sociology that it doesn't deserve. It's sociological language. It's a religion in sociological language, not in sociology. None of this is sociology. It's horseshit. However, the failures of a normative system of gender extend far beyond only those who self-identify as queer, trans, or otherwise beyond the narrow comprehension of the law. 
The harmful impacts of institutionalized gender normativity reverberate across the living world. Oh, that's exciting. Probably gay trees or something. Turning the frogs gay. Who knows? Generations of feminist, queer, and trans scholarship within and across fields of black and indigenous studies, queer, trans, of color, critique, and disability studies illustrate how gender normativity works to maintain the larger structures that facilitate its production, coloniality, and racial capitalism among them. I was hoping we were going to have gay frogs, but not today. Schooling plays a central role in shaping how the public learns the behaviors considered necessary for survival. It's Their argument is the schools are already groomer schools, so we, the conscious Gnostics, should seize control of the grooming. That's their argument. That's why they're groomer schools. That's how they think. At the same time, as each of us learn gendered scripts, we also learn about the consequences of diverting from them. What happens if you don't learn the lines of your assigned script? What if you decide to improv? What if it's just not possible for you to adhere to a script you didn't write? Simply put, you were punished. Not true. There's an old saying, one that I think has tremendous value and I think about a lot. It's wisdom is knowing when to break the rules. You have to know when and you have to know how. If you want to transgress the rules, you have to know when and you have to know how, which means you have to understand the spirit of the rule and keep it. And you have to know how to do it in a way that's not crazy. The queer theorists, I keep telling you this, they don't seem to know what boundaries are or why boundaries should exist. They don't understand that they serve valuable functions, especially with children. Simply put, you are punished. They have a very simple discipline and punished, there's your Michel Foucault, social construction view of how all of the world works. Within and beyond schools, gender transgression is policed early in life taking a range of forms that include social ostracism, psychomedical pathology, pathologization. You mean like giving boys Ritalin and stuff because they're too boyish at school? Is that what you're talking about? Or is, is it giving a bunch of kids SSRIs because they're constantly depressed because of the hellscape you call their education and social life? I, I can't remember what you're talking about. Psychomedical pathologization. Oh, no, you're talking about gender norms. Whoops. You, you weren't talking about what you were doing. You were talking about something that you're pretending exists. I got you. The denial of access to life-preserving resources, you mean like social affirmation, transition, puberty blockers, sterilization, etc. in schools, got you. Physical violence or even death. The stakes are high and they're often unpredictable. Maybe don't destabilize kids so that they're going to be put in that position then. Maybe just don't do that. Maybe stop doing that. The spectacle of these kinds of punishment in turn incentivizes conformity within a normative gender script. They can't think that normatives are oddly aligned with statistical norms for things that are probably reasons. That gender, if we separate it from sex at all, exists as something that feeds off of and feeds back into through sexual reproduction processes. That's what sexual reproduction is about. That's what sexual selection is about in ways that actually facilitate the flourishing and survival and reproduction of human human beings can't imagine that. They can't because they're total social constructivists because they're, they, they think like aliens. They are they think everything is socially constructed and fake and thus can be overturned. A closer look at knowledge production within queer and trans communities is necessary for considering educational tactics that might open possibilities toward a less violent society. 
Many efforts aimed at LGBT inclusion have replaced one monolithic script of gender with another, rather than engaging with how queer and trans knowledge production may invite us to re-examine the very foundations of how we teach. So, er, we go back to Freire. Right, Freire, what does he say? When you have the critical consciousness arrive and you have your revolution, what do you need? You need more critical consciousness so that that which is that which is uh, achieved, he says it instantaneously becomes old, and if you stick in it, it becomes sclerotic and bureaucratic. So many efforts at, uh, aimed at LGBT inclusion have just replaced one monolithic script of gender with another. They're not good enough. The thing that used to be the left is now the is now old. It's now right, and so you need a new left. We have to keep queering and queering again and queering again. But this is what Freire says, which is this is what this is based in. This is a generative program. This is based in Freire. Freire says as soon as you have critical consciousness and you get your revolution, you need more critical consciousness so that the new thing doesn't become like the the new society, which would be oppressive in and of itself again because you have to do it again. You have to do it again. Permanent cultural revolution. He says that's queer. That's what they want to teach your kids to live queerly. Okay, permanent cultural revolutionaries. Freire holds up Che Guevara and says, your kids don't have to have their witness. They could have RuPaul as their witness instead. They could have a drag queen. Not kidding. I'm not exaggerating. I'm not making a joke. I'm telling you what is being communicated here. In their refusal to comply with a dominant paradigm, queer and trans communities reach toward a different kind of world. Hi, Marks. Jose Esteban, I can't do the enye. Munoz argued in his 2009 book, Cruising Utopia, oh, Utopia, hi, hi, Freire, hi, hi, Utopia, that queerness is imagination itself, a yearning for a future not fully conceivable in the present. Queerness is imagination itself, just like Marx was saying, we have to unleash the imagination to remake the world as conscious subjects. Oh, okay. Queerness is imagination itself. What was it that we just saw the other day? Was it the, the um, Methodist drag queen priest or pastor? Sorry, Methodist drag queen pastor. And what did they say? That said that he said that God is not actually real. Queerness is divine. This is a Methodist pastor. Queerness is divine. Queerness is imagination itself. A yearning for a future not fully conceivable in the present. In other words, utopia, just like Freire and Marcuse explain. It's the Hebrews 11.1 version of the, you know, the hope for that which is unlooked for. Confidence in that which isn't arrived, or I I don't remember my Hebrews that well. I apologize for getting it wrong. You got the thrust. What does Munoz say here? Queerness is not here yet. Queerness is an ideality. Put another way, we are not yet queer. We may never touch queerness, but we can feel it as the warm illumination of a horizon imbued with potentiality. We have never been queer, yet queerness exists for us as an ideality that can be distilled from the past and used to imagine a future. You know, like Marx's study of historical conditions to imagine... Oh yeah, sorry. Hi, Marx. The future is queerness's domain. Queerness is a structuring and educated mode of desiring that allows us to see and feel beyond the quagmire of the present. The here and now is a prison house. Gnosticism. Let's do that first part again. Queerness is not yet here. But let's take that word out and put a different one. God is not yet here. Or the kingdom of God is not yet here. The kingdom of God is an ideality. Put another way, we are not yet in the kingdom of God. We may never reach the kingdom of God, but we can feel it as the warm illumination of a horizon imbued with potentiality. 
We've never been in the kingdom of God, yet the kingdom of God exists for us as an ideality that can be distilled from the past and used to imagine a future. Uh Uh-huh. The future is the kingdom of God's domain. It's a religion. It's so transparently a religion. The here and now is a prison house. Oh, it's a Gnostic religion based in Marx. But instead of transforming society, you start by transforming your body. And a a drag queen is going to teach your kids to do it in early childhood education at school. So they say, we now turn to an exploration of drag as a pedagogical form embodying the kind of queer imaginative ideality Munoz described. Drag pedagogy and cultural production. Remember, the goal of Marxism since the 1920s or so has been to seize the means of cultural production. Because cultural Marxism and then critical Marxism focus on that. Identity Marxism extends from that into the reign, into the realm where the cultures are identities, or identity-based, black culture, queer culture, gay culture, da-da-da-da-da, white culture. An understanding of the pedagogical work of drag requires engaging with the social meanings of this art form and the kinds of educational and cultural work that it does. We understand drag not merely as gender reversal, but through the expansive description provided by both gay liberation activist Tady Matthews, I think that's right, T-E-D-E Matthews, and contemporary drag superstar RuPaul. Quoting RuPaul, quote, we are all born naked and the rest is drag. Okay, so we're all performing drag all the time. Everything's always drag, so the conscious drag people have to guide us through drag. Everything's performative. We're already grooming kids into a drag performance, so we need drag performers to come groom them into a conscious drag performance. The same Marxist idea again and again and again across history. This simple but profound statement, they say, suggests that no performance of gender or other cultural signifiers is ever natural, citing Judith Butler. Judith Butler is the queer theorist, and this is uh, Gender Trouble, her 1990 book. There's no natural expression of being human. There's no such thing. No performance of gender. Gender is just a performance like drag. You being a man, you being a woman, you being whatever you are, that's just a performance. You're just performing gender. You're making yourself... Performance for for, for Judith Butler, her performativity concept, which she ripped off from J.L. Austin and got wrong is the idea that you become the thing, the the role that you're performing. So it's not like an actor. It's like a judge or a policeman. When the judge puts on the robes, sits on the bench, and they speak like a judge, and they say, Your Honor, Madam, Miss, you know, whatever, all this stuff, the formalities of being a judge, you call this court to order, whack, do the, the gavel. Or the policeman's like, you know, you have the right to remain silent, and they're in their tough guy suit, and they're walking around like they are, and they're doing very cop stuff, and you can have the cop stereotype whole thing. They're performing copness or performing judgeness, and they become the cop or become the judge through the performance. That was J.L. Austin's idea of what it means to become kind of one of these archetypes, like a judge or a police officer or a nurse or a mother or whatever. And then along comes Judith Butler and is like, no, gender. You become a woman in the same way. You perform womanness. You perform manness. You perform these gendered roles of masculinity and femininity, and thus produce masculinity and femininity, which didn't exist otherwise. There's no judge out there. There's no such thing as a judge. It's a socially constructed thing that people become that, you know, I don't know, Samuel Alito becomes by performing judgeness. And over time, he becomes more and more judgely. 
You become a woman by performing womanliness, femininity. You perform it. And this woman itself as a category comes into being. If nobody was being a judge, there would be no concept of a judge. There would be no judgeness. There would be no judges at all. Nobody would know what it's like to be a judge. And she's saying this is true for women and for men. If there were no women performing femininity, if we didn't perform femininity and didn't perform masculinity, if we just didn't perform these roles, there would be no such thing as a woman and no such thing as a man. There would just be people undifferentiated, everybody being who they want to be, freed from the prison of their violence of categorization, of being thrown into the prison of masculinity or femininity. That's the Butlerian performance thing. That's what's being invoked here. The simple but profound statement, we're all born naked and the rest is drag, from RuPaul, the great philosopher RuPaul. The simple profound but profound statement suggests that no performance of gender or other cultural signifiers is ever natural, whether on stage or in everyday life, and that drag serves as an intentional way of rewriting these scripts and what they want to teach your children to do. Indeed, in queer slang, quote, drag has long been used to describe any form of sartorially stylized performance from putting on a Sunday church drag. See, what did I tell you? to, in our cases, librarian and teacher drag. Gender fluid, so they're pretending to be librarians and pretending to be teachers, even though they're drag queens. So they're adding in, you have to read it on multiple levels, remember? Put your glasses on, says, hey, into the future. Gender fluidity is a component, a key component of drag. Rather than thinking in binary terms, however, we position drag as a highly stylized series of twists and turns. Sashay. They don't say sashay here. Ranging from the satirical to the sincere. Drag differs from other forms of gendered performance and its tendency to, quote, mock authority and challenge the status quo, poking fun at stereotypes rather than affirming them. Again, we have Judith Butler here, but we're citing her 1993 work, Bodies That Matter, instead. Of course, while drag... So this is where she's talking about her politics of parody. The way that you can break down gendered norms is by poking fun of them, by parodying them, by intentionally, say, dressing up in drag and mocking the idea of womanliness, going way too female, being way too feminine as a man, and making fun of it. The politics of parody is a deconstructive tactic to break down the category of man or woman. Because it was all just a performance anyway. So you reveal that it's a performance, and you reveal, in fact, that it's a silly performance. That's what they want to teach your kids. They're just your kids, don't worry. Of course, while drag may be implicitly transgressive, it is not inherently anti-oppressive. Like any art form, drag's possibilities are limited by the views and actions of its practitioners. So you have to have a critical consciousness as a drag performer or you're going to do it wrong. You have to be a groomer. It is important to note, because this is a drag pedagogy, right? That's what they're talking about, drag pedagogy. It was Freirian. You have to be a facilitator. You have to have the right consciousness in order to wake, awaken the queer consciousness. You have to have queer consciousness yourself. You have to facilitate the kids into it. You have to be a groomer. I wasn't being flippant. It is important to note that drag pedagogy predates Drag Queen Story Hour. Drag has always included its own practices of teaching and learning. So we're going to bring it to your kids. Drag's pedagogical and cultural work extends beyond entertainment to offer artistic interpretations of cultural texts as well as opportunities for building and sustaining community. That's going to get weird later. Performances generally address queer trans people directly through techniques like invoking community slang or making parodies out of pop songs. Drag often catalyzes what Munoz 1999 describes as disidentification, a mode of negotiating dominant culture that is that quote simultaneously works on with and against a cultural form. 
as a way for minoritized subjects to, quote, seize social agency in the public sphere. Hi, Marx. Building from Munoz, E. Patrick Johnson in 2001 wrote, quote, these defamatory, sorry, disidentification, these disidentificatory performances serve material ends, and they do this work by accounting for the context in which these performances occur. The stage, for instance, is not confined solely to the theater, the dance club, or the concert hall. Streets, social service lines, picket lines, loan offices, and emergency rooms, among others, may also serve as useful staging grounds. Indeed, drag performers, this and the quote is over, sorry, end quote. Indeed, drag performers have made important contributions to social and political change. A quick stroll through drag herstory reveals numerous examples. Leadership in political uprisings like those at Compton's Cafeteria in 1966 and the Stonewall Inn in 1969 that shaped early gay liberation movements. Performers like Jose Saria and Joan Jett Black running for public office. And groups like the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence raising funds for HIV-AIDS services and LGBT organizations. Each of these is a pedagogical act in queer own right. That's what it says. I can't help you with the grammar. I think queer is replacing its. But whatever. In addition to teaching the public, drag performers have well-established ways of learning from each other and their audiences. Remember, we're framing out that it's already an education method, so it'll go to the children. Many performers study their craft in an adoptive drag family. Uh-oh. <laughs> Uh-oh. Family. Well, I know I know that's what they call it. I know that's what they do. But remember, they're trying to groom your children into this. New family. An adoptive drag family, wherein drag mothers or fathers, sisters, aunties, guide their children in anything from how to glue down one eye, one's eyebrows to delivering a flawless lip sync. Through interact, those are very valuable things for you to have learned as a child in school instead of math and reading, by the way. Through interaction with audiences and observing fellow performers, drag artists learn about what fans appreciate and hecklers cling on to. Also, very important everything's performance. Slang like, quote, reading and shade denote various forms of sassy but generally supportive critique. And play a pedagogical role among tight circles and clubs. Increasingly, many artists learn from social media tutorials or television shows. Yay, TV shows. Thanks, RuPaul. Though there are common standards or trends within the art of drag, there are few tightly held maxims or scripts. No rules, don't worry. That's a big theme here. Reading in parentheses to the children. So you're reading to the children, but you're also reading the children in the drag slang way. Multiple levels of reading. Get your glasses, kids. Drag in the classroom. We now turn to five overlapping examples of the kind of cultural knowledge that drag can teach children and educators. Gag. We, rec we recognize that, quote, culture is an imprecise term, yet find some value in the cognitive struggle conjured by its ambiguity, similar to the word queer. This list is also hardly exhaustive. We seek to move beyond assumptions that, purpose, that the purpose of a program like Drag Queen Story Hour should be only to expose children to, quote, diverse stories or easily digestible morsels of LGBT history and culture. Hmm. You mean the things that they say when they do the Mott and Bailey game and they come out and they say, no, it's just this. No, they say, we're going to move beyond that. It should not just be to expose children to so-called diverse stories or easily digestible morsels of LGBT history and culture. 
Though Drag Queen Story Hour, they say, publicly positions its impact in, quote, helping children develop empathy, learn about gender diversity and difference, and tap into their own creativity, we argue that its contributions can run deeper than morals and role models. Oh, though it publicly positions itself as all this stuff, it has another agenda. Hmm, how about that? And what follows, we keep with a common drag performance trope in redirecting our readers away from what's said on the surface, toward the subtle nods and zingers that gesture at what's happening between the lines. With your kids. With your kids. What's happening between the lines? Between a adult male dressed as a sexualized woman with your children. For us, drag pedagogy is less about imitating drag queens' specific behaviors and more about embodied inquiry into queer trans ways of being that reach beyond the present. That's the queer futurity that was in Hannah Dyer's paper to make sure that the children come out queer. Not necessarily LGBTQ, not stable, certainly not stable, whether LGBTQ or not, but living queerly, queer, destabilized, fluid, politically active, challenging the idea that norms should exist at all. Feeling your fantasy. Play as queer praxis. Feeling your fantasy. Adult man dressed as a highly sexualized woman. Facilitating, let's say, your children in a transformation of who they are. Feeling your fantasy is the title of the section. Remember they just said to read as though they're using zingers and hidden language beneath the surface and between the lines? Groomer schools, what am I telling you? Though hardly uncontroversial in either domain, play remains a critical component of both drag and early childhood education. Oh my god, a pun! So let's put them together. Drag queens play, children play, they're a natural fit. Perverts. Like other forms of make-believe, drag functions as a uniquely queer form of embodied and unscripted play that invites creative world-building. Creative world-building. Hi, Marks. Okay, hang on a second. Drag functions as a uniquely queer form of embodied and unscripted play among adults who are doing a particular thing. I don't even have a problem with drag in general. I think that it has a niche purpose. I think it's an, I do agree. It's an art form. I don't necessarily find it terribly interesting, but I know people who do, and I know that it can be really funny. I know they can actually achieve some things. I know that it's, it's an art form. Burlesque is an art form. That's fine too. Not with kids. Adults can choose to go to it or not if they want to in adult only spaces, not in school libraries and not in school classrooms with early childhood education. Okay. An embodied and unscripted play. Fine, drag is an art form that, that uses embodied and, un and unscripted play. And it's fun, and it's a show. It's a performance. It's not education. Sorry, no. This is where I keep saying the queer theory people don't have a sense of what real boundaries are or why they exist, so they must be kept away from children. Because we're feeling our fantasy, and we have to read between the lines between an adult male dressed as a sexualized woman and your children. In this way, they tell us drag aligns with many early theories of play. Johann Huizinga, from 1949, describes play as, quote, a free activity standing quite consciously outside ordinary life as being, quote, not serious, but at the same time absorbing the player intensely and utterly. What is drag if not dressing up in special costumes and acting out a fantasy outside of everyday life? Okay, so obviously it's play, haha. -ha. 
Play is also framed as inherently unproductive, or as Roger uh, Kylois, I guess, 1958, stated, quote, an occasion of pure waste. That's what they want to teach your children to do, an occasion of pure waste. We suggest that drag's larger value lies largely outside of formal economies. Your children are going to be wastrels. Never do wells, as we used to say. While drag has some conventions, it ultimately has no rules. Its defining quality is often to break as many rules as possible with an adult man dressed as a sexualized woman working with your children. Feeling your fantasy. Thus, drag can be thought of as a kind of queer praxis that might be especially well-suited to early childhood education, not because of any qualities essential to young children, and instead because early, early education is one of the few remaining school settings that encourages play. See, children play, drag queens are play, put the drag queens in the children. Makes total sense. Feeling your fantasy. Drag similarly breaks boundaries between reality and fantasy. You know, like with an adult man dressed as a sexualized woman interacting with your children in ways to encourage queer living. Breaks boundaries between reality and fantasy and allowing performers to take on new identities and social relationships in material form just by playing the part. See, that thing about gender performativity, they really believe it. So they think that the conscious should seize the means of gender performativity, and you can then groom people into it. Everybody's already being groomed. We're already creating our genders and everything. We could do it intentionally with an eye toward queer deconstruction. Huizinka referred to the etymology of imagination as, quote, making an image of something different, something more beautiful or more sublime. The concept of, quote, realness, vernacular popularized in black and Latinx, queer and trans ballroom communities, articulates a similar sense of becoming through performance. Becoming. <clears throat> Hello, Marx and Hegel. Becoming through performance. You become what you perform. You become the judge. You become the drag queen. Or your kids do. And they become real. That was real. Popularized in ballroom communities. You became the dancer. You became the character that you played. Ballroom performers don outfits to compete in categories like femme queen, schoolboy, or executive realness. Citing again Judith Butler, Bodies That Matter. As noted in the documentary, Paris is Burning, quote, whatever you want to be, you be. You have a chance to display your elegance, your seductiveness, your beauty, your wit, your charm, your knowledge. You can become anything and do anything right here, right now, and it won't be questioned. Adult male, dressed in a sexually provocative way as a woman, interacting with your children. You could do anything right here, right now, and it won't be questioned. You can become anything. Drag reminds us, they say, that our imaginations need not be limited by embodiment. Now, your body doesn't have to limit your imagination. What did I tell you? Reality itself is a constraint on your subjective range, on the capacity for you to imagine a different world. Drag reminds us that our imaginations need not be limited by our bodies, but that we can all make over our own image to shape how others see us. As it moves into early childhood education settings, the art of drag risks falling into the trap of what Ruben Gatztambide Fernandez calls the, quote, rhetoric of effects. The incorporation of play and art in the classroom is regularly justified by this category of instrumentalist claims, including their potential to bolster, quote, academic skill development through measurable outcomes. We're not going to learn academic skill development here. We're going to teach your kids to be living queer through drag. 
In effect, this framework can turn play into, quote, a technology of governmentality in early childhood. See, even drag might just become something that Foucault would criticize. It might just become a mechanism. More governmentality. You have to be this way. You have to be that way. No, no, no. The point is that you don't have to be anything. You can be whatever you want. You're feeling your fantasy with your children as an adult man dressed as a sexualized woman. As an organization, Drag Queen Story Hour might be incentivized to recite lines about alignment with curricular standards and social-emotional learning. Oh, hi. Hi, SEL. In order to be legible within public education and philanthropic institutions. Drag itself ultimately does not take these utilitarian aims too seriously, but it is quite good at looking the part when necessary. Did you just hear what I just said? As an organization, Drag Queen Story Hour is incentivized to, you know, line up with curricular standards, to do social-emotional learning, so it can be comprehended within public education and by philanthropists who fund it. But drag itself doesn't take these utilitarian aims too seriously, but it is quite good at looking the part when necessary. As an organization, let's put it together in different order. As an organization, Drag Queen Story Hour is good to pretend that it cares about curricular standards so that it will be acceptable within public education and philanthropic institutions. But it doesn't actually take that seriously. It's just responding to the incentives, like money and opportunity to groom kids. Instead, drag is firmly rooted in play as a site of queer pleasure with your kids. Resistance, teaching your kids to be activists, and self-fashioning. You're not going to be limited by your body. You can be anything you want, kids. It aims toward play without predetermined purpose. Oh, how grooming. We're just going to hang out, you know, a highly sexualized adult man dressed as a woman with your children. We're just going to hang out and just whatever happens, happens. No predetermined purpose. We're going to play. We're just playing together. If you can't see that this is groomer schools level like 99, I don't even know what to tell you. Like limit break 999. Serving looks. You know, like the looks they give you with the drag where they give you a little glance. Serving looks. You have to read it on multiple levels. Get your glasses. Sashay. Serving looks. Teaching through aesthetic transformation. Drag Queen Story Hour is pedagogical without being particularly pedantic. There are a few neat and tidy lessons, no repetitively stated objectives, no scripted curriculum aside from the text of the books read aloud. Instead, the program is based largely on improvised performance and the appeal of aesthetics. See figure three. Guess what they show in figure three? Friggin' drag queens with kids. That's what. In fact, it's one calling himself a reverend. Building from Munoz, we suggest that the aesthetic dimension of drag pedagogy engages with potentiality, that which does not exist in present material form, but on the horizon, rather than possibility, that which already exists in a tangible and real way. Hi, Marx. Or Marcuse, I guess. While there is a loose and practically oriented common architecture to story hour, to a story hour, sorry, read a story, sing a song, rinse and repeat, the queens do very little to teach anything explicitly. What a surprise. There is no lesson on the meaning of gender, no worksheets on how to be kind. All that is blasé. Such activities would betray integrity to form. See, you have to be integrity. You have to have integrity. You have to really be a queen. You can't, you can't have stuff be too rigid. Drag queen time. Instead, the queens employ a more dialogic approach to pedagogy. Oh, hi, hi, Freire, hi, Freire, dialogical approach. So you're engaging in dialogue with the students to find out what they want to find, you know, what, where, where, they're, where they're vulnerable, and then you can maybe 
you know, feel your fantasy with them or whatever it was that we're going to do with no rules, whatever it was. I'm just trying to put words together from your paper here, guys. Instead, the queens employ a more dialogic approach to pedagogy that is largely built on a captivating aesthetic that seeks to broaden the imagination. See, they just glitter bomb and fun bomb the kids, and that's the whole point. You don't teach them anything. You just fill them with fun and glitter. Big colors, big shows, big overblown personalities, clowns. Kids love that stuff. It's so fun for them. The educational philosopher Maxine Green, 1995, deeply concerned with, quote, wide awakeness of awareness of what it is to be in the world. One might say woke, I don't know, wrote, quote, to tap into the imagination is to become able to break with what is supposedly fixed and finished, objectively and independently real. It is to see beyond what the imaginer has called normal or common sensible, and to carve out new orders in experience. Doing so, a person may become freed to glimpse what might be, to form notions of what should be and what is not yet. And the same and the same person may, at the same time, remain in touch with what presumably is. Or, they tell us, as drag queen Nina West sang in her children's album in 2019, quote, drag is a vacation from a boring day. Use your own imagination. All you got to do is close your eyes and see who you want to be. In the world of drag, you can wear a crown and glitter and bright yellow crinoline and makeup and neon green fishnets and a wig. Everything is dialed up, made more interesting in large part because it is extraordinary. That's in italics. The same book read by a, quote, regular teacher suddenly seems banal. When a drag queen reads a story, the technicolor has been turned on and the show has begun. See, your regular teacher is boring. You don't want rules. You don't want structure. You don't want that boring stuff. There's all this color. You can wear a crown and glitter and bright yellow. It's literally the thing Andy Griffith warned about. And that show that went viral the other day where, where I think Allie Beth Stuckey is the first one to put it out, but maybe somebody else did. I saw it, saw it with her where he says you, you, you can glitter bomb kids basically into really bad ideas and they're going to think it's great. So actual adults have to set boundaries and then they have a lot of a mess to clean up when somebody comes in and glitter bombs them. It's exactly the thing. Though there are many layers to drag, its most immediate process of denaturalizing gender and culture happens on the surface through the potentiality held in aesthetics. It's so big and technicolor and just over the top. It makes your regular teacher just seem so boring. You just want to gravitate toward the drag queen. Aren't your parents boring? Aren't your parents boring? Aren't you Oh my God, aren't you the school? Isn't the librarian dull? Look how fun we are. Oh my God, kids. Groomers. As early childhood educational philosophies like Regio Emilia have espoused for generations, visual aesthetics can act as a, quote, third teacher in a classroom, playing an equal role to the adults and children in the learning process. In the Regio Emilia tradition, materials often provide creative provocations to inspire inquiry and learning. Except in this case, the material that's creating a creative provocation is a man dressed as a highly sexualized woman clown in your kid's classroom. It's worth noting here that the Radio Familia philosophy developed in connection with the Italian anti-fascist movement in the mid-20th century, demanding a particular political urgency for the cultivation of imagination in children. See, putting drag queens in your kid's school is anti-fascist. That's where it comes from. Uh Uh-huh. What do you want to be, a fascist? 
Within the context of Drag Queen Story Hour, the visual style of the queen serves as the provocation that invites inquiry into normative fashion and embodiment. That's what I was saying. That's the freery and generative thing. That's why they said that. The visual style of the queen is a provocation, they say that, intentionally, proud of it, that invites the discussion or inquiry into what is normative fashion and behavior. Why are you dressed like a woman? Why are you in a clown suit? Why are you acting like a sex boy? It's a dildo hanging from your freaking waist. Christina Aguilera? Glitter, sequins, wigs, heels all serve as pedagogical tools for your children. Inviting questions like, why and how is drag made unusual in this environment? Why is it weird that you're here in school? In other words, while verbal communication is a crucial element of Drag Queen Story Hour, even if the queen said nothing, we argue that her mere aesthetic presence would be generative. It would create the dialogue, the discussion that then you can use to do a codification, decodification, brainwashing session on the kids so that they might come out living queerly in their new drag family. While simultaneously destabilizing many of the mundane assumptions of gendered embodiment and of classroom life through the style, movement, and gesture, see, boring school, drag queen's more fun, drag queen story hour presents a queer relationship to educational experience. The traditional role of the teacher transformed into a loud and sparkling queen becomes delightfully excessive. She's less interested in focus, discipline, achievement, or objectives than playful self-expression. That's your kid's school. She is less interested in focus, discipline, achievement, or objectives than playful self-expression. Her pedagogy is rooted in pleasure and creativity born in part from letting go of control. It is a man dressed as a sexualized woman interacting with young children in a school, and her educational approach is rooted in pleasure. Her, his Educational approach is rooted in pleasure and creativity born in part from letting go of control. A sexualized man, or sorry, a man dressed as a sexualized woman is doing an educational process by mere presence with your children rooted in pleasure derived from letting go of control. They wrote this. This is an academic paper defending this as an educational program strategy. Reading the room. I'm sure they're reading the room really friggin' well. They're reading the room so, so well, aren't they? Inviting strategic defiance. Dry Queen Story Hour is organized differently than the usual classroom experience. No shit. The art of drag is defiant, playful, unruly. That's your kids. Drag, imagine when they come home how much fun they're going to be, defiant, playful, unruly, with their boring parents who are not turned up to 11 in Technicolor. Drag is largely improvisational and relies on a performer's practice adaptation to an audience. There's an art to knowing when to wing it, to take a break from being a control queen, or to make room for a bit of chaos. Words or dance steps get forgotten, a song skips, a prop breaks, and audiences often talk back. Drag queens have little interest in such mechanical and dull ideas as, quote, classroom management. It says that. It really says that. Classroom management as a framework relies on rules and procedures as a sort of factory model for quality control. It stifles creativity and aims toward order, marching toward a mirage of identical outcomes and efficient productivity. This reinforces what Foucault, in The History of Sexuality, called the cursorial continuum. Prison continuum. 
the carceral continuum, which disproportionately funnels minoritized students toward prisons and other forms of confinement. Other forms of confinement, anybody? As an art form, drag is all about... Pause to just appreciate that that's what they want for your kids' school. As an art form, drag is all about bending and breaking the rules. So its aims are totally different from a normative classroom. Kind of like these Disney movies they keep showing your kids that are like all rebellious against your parents now. When a drag queen enters a classroom, classes in parentheses, so it could be a room or a classroom, she generally intends to draw attention to herself. Hmm. What a narcissist. How about that? Whether through shock, admiration, or envy of her embodied performance, there is a premium on standing out and artfully desecrating the sacred. That's your children that they want to do this to. In other words, what we refer to as strategic defiance is encouraged. What might strategic, sorry, what might strategic defiance look like in a classroom setting? How might teachers encourage children to talk back rather than suppressing dissent? Arts education scholar Elliot Eisner wrote in 2002, in the arts, judgments are made in the absence of rule. How can educators teach children how to skillfully question authority or break the rules? Oof. Just oof. Drag may offer some insights into how educators might support a practice of strategic defiance. In the moments when a child interrupts, a queen might respond to them as she would a heckler at a show. Oh, the sassiness. Rather than punishing, it's your child that they're going to respond to them as they would a heckler at a show in school. Rather than punishing a child by reprimanding or removing them, a queen is more likely to try to engage the child's energy and use it to fuel her performance. It's all about the performer, right? Your kid is just a foil to the narcissist in the room dressed as a woman in a highly sexually provocative way. As drag artist Taylor Mack insists, when an audience member, quote, is threatening to take the story away from the storyteller, then you have to incorporate them into the story at all costs. So your kid is a foil to the drag queen in school. That's why the best queens engage their hecklers, turning the butt of the joke around, or better, forming a sense of solidarity between the performer and heckler against the outside world. No, it's you and me, babe. It's you and me, girl. Against all them. Many young... They don't understand. Come with me. Nothing grooming about that. Many young students, like hecklers, interrupt or act out because they are genuinely curious and excited, don't fully understand something, or feel excluded and are looking for a way to participate. By playfully responding to and incorporating children's feedback rather than dismissing it... See, because regular teachers, when they kind of have classroom management are actually just suppressing things. They're, they're doing it wrong. Drag queens do it better. Teachers might invite their students into co-constructing the classroom environment. That's Freire's and his acolyte, uh, Henry Drew's Democratic Classroom, which is huge in education now, but now with a drag queen instead of a teacher. In a broader context, fostering collective unruliness also helps children to understand that they can have a hand in changing their environment or their world, transforming it, maybe. Hey, Marks. For any child who has ever asked a parent or teacher why and been unsatisfied with the answer, because I told you so, drag may help elucidate the arbitrariness of rules. Rules are not arbitrary, though. Most of them are not. Especially boundaries for children are not arbitrary. Especially when you have a highly sexualized man dressed as a woman interacting with your kids. By encouraging students to explore the boundaries of acceptability, oof, Drag offers a model for, particip for participating in a learning experience where axioms are meant to be challenged and authority is not a given. 
In the school environment, of course, oppressive conditions are often produced by the institution itself, and many children who intuitively resist these conditions are punished. That's great. That's a recipe for a great learning and safe environment. Drag Queen Story Hour performers demonstrate a refusal to be told what to do. Mm, good modeling, role modeling for the kids. In their demonstration of strategic defiance, drag storytellers engage in a more finely tuned kind of resistance that many children can practice all the time. Great. Great. This embody- imagine what that imagine what home is going to be like. Imagine what the regular classroom is going to be like after this. This is a nightmare. And you know why they're doing it. They want to separate you from that. They want to separate you from your parents. They want to separate you from structure and rules. But these are your kids. Your kid is going to come home as a little crazy person that's almost impossible to control, sassing back, crazy talk, all this stuff, and is going to gravitate toward the glitter bomb that's grooming in the classroom when you try to enforce anything like order or discipline at home. This embodied pedagogy teaches that in unjust situations, people can use strategic tactics to push back against harmful actions. Ah, it's just that. Drag may be especially well-positioned as a form of cultural production that, to paraphrase the writer and filmmaker, Tony Tony Cade, sorry, Bambara, serves to, quote, make revolution irresistible. Drag may be especially well-positioned as a form of cultural production that serves to make Revolution irresistible. Great. Similarly, drag aesthetics can provide an avenue into exploring children's curiosities about social norms, which often reflect inconsistencies in what they have been taught. At many Drag Queen Story Hour events, children ask genuine questions like, are you a boy or a girl? Or, why are you dressed like that? Often embarrassing their well-meaning parents or teachers. And now the manipulation on them is clear. Although such questions, it's a generative thing. You see, you bring the drag queen in in front of the kids, and the kids just do this, and now the parents and teacher are embarrassed. Because mm. the kids don't understand a drag performance, and they weren't supposed to understand a drag performance, and they don't understand a drag performance, and they're not going to understand a drag performance. And so they ask these questions, and it embarrasses the well-meaning teachers and parents into continuing to do more of this crap so their kids wouldn't embarrass them in the future. What a disgusting manipulation. Although such questions, and you can see how it gets installed. Oh my god, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be those bigoted parents and teachers and administrators. We got to bring the drag queens in. Although such questions can be hurtful in many non-drag contexts, Drag Queen Story Hour creates a space in which performers can answer personally and honestly. In many cases, drag queens may not respond with answers, but with questions meant to complicate perceptions of gender in society. Quote, Why does it matter if I'm a boy or a girl? Or, why shouldn't I wear sequins and feathers and lots of makeup? Remember, it's a man dressed up as a highly sexualized woman interacting with your children. And you're embarrassed that your child was able to call this shit out. Probably you're really embarrassed that you didn't have the nerve to call this shit out and say no. Where your child clearly knew something's wrong and you seriously fucked up as the adult in the room. Drag loves to turn rejection into desire. That's great. We're only talking about a man dressed up as a highly sexualized woman interacting with your children. Drag loves to turn rejection into desire, transforming the labor of performance into the pleasure of participation. 
Typically, as an audience member, you don't pay attention because you have to. You pay attention because you want to. Here, Drag Queen Story Hour reaches toward what educational philosopher, God, this guy's famous too, Michelinos Zambilas, referred to as a pedagogy of desire. Sick. Drawing from Deleuze and Guattari, two postmodern lunatics, Zambilas theorized such a pedagogy as one that, quote, draws attention to the social and political construction of desire and transforms the valorization of essential basic knowledge and skills into a site of political analysis. In, doing, in so doing, pedagogies of desire, quote, strive to create landscapes of becoming. Hi, Marx and Hegel. Hi, alchemy. But it's your body now, or your kids' bodies. It's your kids' bodies. Kids. It's just your kids' bodies. Engaging with the risks and pleasures of modifying and being modified by the world. It's just your kids' bodies. It's just your kids' minds. It's just your kids. Why are you so stiff? It's drag. It's fun. It's fun. The Attorney General of Michigan said it's fun. Every school needs it. It's fun. Why are you so stiff? You could be engaging your children with the risks and pleasures of modifying and being modified by the world, of becoming, of transition, maybe. The aesthetics of drag offer a landscape of becoming. This is hermetic alchemy, channeled through Hegel, channeled through Marx, through, channeled, channeled through Foucault and queer theorists to your children. The aesthetics of drag offer a landscape of becoming through a vision of self-determination and freedom within a collective. You couldn't a vision of self-determination and freedom within a collective. This is dialectical leftism. You can do what you want to do. You can be who you want to be in a practice that takes place in constant conversation with others. Don't worry, we just have to have a nightmare totalitarian state and lots of prisons and people dead before we get to the part where it's fun. But we'll get there. Just sign on. It's just your kids. Camping it up. Embracing shame as curriculum. We're talking about the queer camp aesthetic here. Drag Queen Story Hour embraces a kind of camp curriculum. Here we think of curriculum as an active process that seeks to open and reopen potentialities outside of what children have come to expect about society. Hmm, great. Camp, like drag, cannot be defined or explicitly taught. In Susan Sontag's 1964 formative essay, she refers to camp as a, quote, sensibility. Marcuse's new sensibility, anybody? that relies on unapologetic artifice in the treatment of life as theater by, quote, dethroning the serious. Isn't that what Marcuse said, that the revolution will come through antinomian and clownish forms? It gets rid of the uh, esprit de serieux, the spirit of seriousness, through the, quote, proper mixture of the exaggerated, the fantastic, the passionate, and the naive. The passionate, it's your kids. Camp is not simply a, simply a gimmick, as Christopher Isherwood makes explicit. Quote, you can't camp about something you don't take seriously. You're not making fun of it. You're making fun out of it. You're expressing what's basically serious to you in terms of fun and artifice and elegance. Like your kids' educational prospects and future. Because it's futures trading, which is boring and stiff. we got to make it fun, like drag. Camp thus allows a performer to survive oppressive conditions and otherwise painful subjects, you know, Gnostic people that have imprisoned themselves in their own suffering and misery because they're vulnerable narcissists. Camp thus allows a performer to survive oppressive conditions and address otherwise painful subjects by decontextualizing and defanging them. As a performative practice, camp, and by extension, extension drag, seeks to embrace failure and shame. 
ideas whose substance may look different for children but still provoke highly effective reactions. Affective. Emotional. In the context of uh, Drag Queen Story Hour, campily addressing these topics may involve reading books like Taro Gomi's 1977 Everyone Poops that may feel a bit scandalous or taboo to children or the adults who accompany them, fostering a spirit of irreverence and impropriety in the classroom. Do you want a drag queen coming to your kid's school and talking about poop with your kids? Do you? Choosing to read a story like Everyone Poops makes fun out of a book that would make many teachers nervous. It's true, everybody does poop. But the people who perhaps most regularly remind society of that are young children. In preschool, when many children are recently toilet trained, a source of pride is quickly made into something shameful at school. Poop is private and not to be discussed here. Dry Queen Story Hour dethrones the serious by taking toilet humor out of the bathroom and into the public space, aligning with a common childhood experience by laughing with them at a stigmatized topic, thereby challenging the implicit rules of the school. It's funny when you shit yourself, kid. Some drag queens said so. Similarly, many campy drag aesthetics like parody and exaggeration destigmatize shame by placing the joke on society rather than individuals. See? society's fault. Further revealing to kids that our ideas of appropriateness are subject to change. Uh Uh-huh. Like, you just were talking about kids shitting themselves, and trying to not do that in public, and trying to overcome that, because it's kind of not good. For example, Little Miss Hot Mess's 2020 picture book, the hips on the drag queen go swish, 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 encourage kids to move their hips in ways often coded as effeminate. This not only breaks the taboo of acting effeminate or identifying with queer figures, but also opens space for children to study drag as a source of creative inspiration. No, so the book is actually to try to get kids to become drag queens, taught by drag queens who are not groomers. What are we supposed to believe here? Are you? Do you think we're stupid? Classroom teachers might similarly work to address children's feelings of shame by highlighting the arbitrariness of norms, They're not arbitrary. Treating the disconnect between individual experience and institutional expectation as an important site of knowledge production to guide change. In other words, hi, Marx. Further, drag and camp both embody culturally specific forms of critical pedagogy. Oh, well, yes, yes, they would. Far from reflecting a superficial, quote, style over substance, camp requires deep engagement with its material. As Philip Kaur in 1984 noted, camp is the, quote, lie that tells the truth. Hmm. That is, drag helps us better understand dominant culture by transforming its constitutive elements. This way, Camp echoes feminist standpoint theory, citing Donna Haraway, foregrounding interpretation from one's own cultural situation as well as the broader social context. This Gnostic standpoint theory is what it is. It's what the Maoists call the people's perspective. It's the, the oppressed, you see, have double sight. They know more. This is the double consciousness covered by W.B. Du Bois and adopted into critical race theory. The oppressed have more sight. They understand what it's like to be in the bad position. They have a standpoint from which they understand the true social reality better than everybody else. So they're conscious or can be made conscious. They can be facilitated or groomed into consciousness. Conscientization maybe is the name of the process, at which point they can seize the means of production and guide society consciously toward liberation. Hmm, I see. What does it say? In this way, camp echoes feminist standpoint theory, foregrounding interpretation from one's own cultural situation, as well as broader social context. Thus, while drag incorporates elements of fantasy, it is meant to reveal rather than deceive. 
Mm, I see. Contrary to the prevalence of misinformation today, oh, buzzword, drag offers a playful call to consider information from many angles. See, the man dressed as a highly sexualized woman in your kid's classroom isn't deceiving, isn't preventing, presenting misinformation. They're saying we have to playfully consider information from other angles, question its, question its motivations, and cite its sources, all with the wink of an eye. Yikes. In a camp-informed curriculum, students might develop media literacies not only through studying established canons, but also by parodying pop songs or rewriting their favorite books in order to imagine beyond the worlds they inhabit. From empathy to embodied kinship. Here's where we're going to get a whole new family. Finally, and this we're going to see some... You want to see the curtain getting pulled back on the drag queen of Oz? We're about to see it. Finally, it is often assumed that the primary pedagogical goal of queer education should be to increase empathy toward LGBT people. That's what they tell us. It's just about caring about gay people. Don't you want your kids to care about gay people? Well, what do they say? While this premise has some merit and underlies many sincere projects in educational and cultural work, including Drag Queen Story Hour, yeah, right. The notion of empathy has also been critiqued by feminist scholars of color and others for the ways in which empathy can enable an effective appropriation of an individual's unique experiences and reinforce hierarchies of power. Scholars have invoked terms like false empathy, identity tourism, and empathy's obliteration of the other to to critique the claims of putting yourself in someone else's shoes via uh, various empathy machines. Whether through literature or virtual reality, these tropes tend to reflect an overstated ability to understand difference as well as empathy's potential to preclude meaningful relationships with solidarity. It is undeniable that Drag Queen Story Hour participates in many of these tropes of empathy, from the marketing language the program uses to its selection of books. Now listen. Much of this is strategically done in order to justify its educational value. However, we suggest that drag support scholars' critiques of empathy rather than reifying the concept. Drag performers do not necessarily seek identification with another, but rather to experience ways of embodying and expressing different aspects of themselves. Rather than walking in someone else's shoes and trying to understand what it might mean to be a different gender, for example, Drag offers a model for participants to try on many costumes and cosmetics to understand how these elements reinforce or alter their own sense of self. Now hold up. Let's back up. It is undeniable that Drag Queen Story Hour participates in many of these tropes of empathy from the marketing language the program uses to its selection of books. Much of this is strategically done in order to justify its educational value. However, we do something else. They're lying, and they know they're lying. They know they're lying about what they're doing. They know. They just said so. They adopt that outward form that it's about supporting empathy for LGBT people strategically in order to justify its educational value. But they offer something different. The opportunity to to learn to redefine yourself, to live queerly through a groomer, dressed as a woman in a highly sexually provocative way. 
In the classroom, this queer dress-up might create more opportunities for young people to experiment with feeling, or sorry, with the feeling of how and why seemingly arbitrary changes of clothing and behavior impact the ways they experience and are interpreted by the world. That is, they're not arbitrary changes of clothing, though. That is, drag is an imaginative and creative process. It is grounded in building character. Oh my god both in the sense of constructing a persona and in better understanding one's own relations to others. This approach can support students in finding the unique or queer aspects of themselves, rather than attempting to understand what it's like to be LGBT. Well, that myth is busted, isn't it? It's groomers. It's not about understanding or accepting gay people. In fact, they've criticized that repeatedly. It's something else entirely. It is about grooming kids to see themselves through queer eyes. Drag pedagogy brings a sense of queerness more robustly into the classroom, not merely by teaching about Harvey Milk or Sylvia Rivera, but through an embodied and effective process. Emotional process. Cult grooming. Cultural theorists have long described relationships of solidarity across difference, from Audre Lorde's foundational calls to learn from, quote, each other's differences in our common battles for a livable future, to Harney and Moton's 2013 more recent theorization of study, as about simply what you do with other people that honors that the incessant and the irreversible intellectuality of these activities is already present. Rather than building empathy from a set of presumed straight or cisgender children, then, Drag pedagogy might enact a mode of queer kinship that acknowledges that there's already queerness within the classroom. Queerness is already here. It's already in you. We're decodifying queerness. We're making it relevant to you now that we've problematized how they're treated. And we're now kin. We're now related. We're now a family, a queer family, separate from your other family, that understands this, where other people don't get it. Cult grooming. The drag queen, who knows that they're lying about what they're doing and why they're doing it, who knows that they're putting out a lie for the marketing purposes and for acceptability, and who knows that they're doing this very intentionally to groom kids in this way. Through intentional performances that they know are manipulative, glitter-bombing kids. In turn, drag queen teachers have much to learn from interactions with children. Yeah. Many queens reflect that Drag Queen Story Hour allows them to build relationships with young people that otherwise would not be possible. You've got to be kidding me. Many queens reflect that Drag Queen Story Hour allows them to build relationships with young people that otherwise wouldn't be possible. Hmm. A man dressed as a highly sexualized woman can now build a relationship with your children that otherwise wouldn't be able to be possible if it weren't for things like Drag Queen Story Hour, which your tax dollars are paying for, among other things. Some queens who faced homo and transphobic, so homophobic and transphobic mistreatment as children, have said that Drag Queen Story Hour has offered a kind of healing and hope. So your children become the tool for them to get over their own psychological damage. Hmm. So wrong. So wrong. Ugh. <sighs> I need to take a shower after this, and I'm not even done. We're almost done. Queer theory has generally reflected pessimism about the future, and some queer theorists have rejected the compulsory reproductivity 
that children often represent in society. See, children reproduce the society, but you raise them. That's grooming them to be like in the society. And then they reproduce the society because you groomed them to be in the society. They, it, there's pessimism because that's probably going to keep happening. And queer theorists have rejected that we should make that compulsory. However, following Munoz, we suggest that Drag Queen Story Hour offers a queer relationality with children that breaks from the reproductive futurity of the normative classroom and nuclear family. It breaks from the normative classroom and nuclear family. In other words, the reproductive futurity. Let me frame that out. That's probably a pun, by the way, with the nuclear family, reproductive futurity. Futurity means potentials in the future. So your kid might be able to grow up and reproduce society or literally marry, say, the opposite sex and reproduce with children, giving you grandchildren. But queer drag queen story hour offers a queer relationality with children that breaks from that reproductive futurity the likelihood that they're going to reproduce a society in the future or become people who go on to reproduce of the normative classroom and nuclear family hmm and nuclear family explicitly saying that the goal is to break you from the structure your kids from the structure of the nuclear family and drag queens are ideally placed to do it and we've already heard why as Munoz wrote, quote, queerness should and could be about a desire for another way of being in both the world and time, a desire that resists mandates to accept that which is not enough. Hello, Marx. Hello, Gnosticism. Similarly, similarly sorry, Sarah Ahmed writes about queer use as ways of remaking existing paths and institutions, often by those who are not conceived as the intended users. In writing about how everyday experiences can serve as queer teachers, she notes that such work, quote, requires more than an act of affirmation. It requires world-dismantling effort. We offer... We offer that the kinship created by drag pedagogy might offer a way of thinking beyond both the cruel optimism and potential utopias of the horizon to consider how alternate worlds are being made in the here and now. So that's Freyerian utopianism. Conclusion. So we're almost there. As drag has moved further into the mainstream, some have questioned whether this queer art form has lost its edge. Oh, drag is the victim here. In discussing the work of Drag Queen Story Hour within our circles, we have occasionally encountered critiques that Drag Queen Story Hour is sanitizing the risque nature of drag in order to make it, quote, family-friendly. This is about to get super fucked up. We do not share this pessimistic view. Queer world-making, including political organizing, they just have to say that part, has long been a project driven by desire. <laughs> really? <laughs> so we're talking about Drag Queen Story Hour. So we're talking about a man dressed as a highly sexualized woman. No normal man does this. I'm a normal man, sort of. No normal man does this. No normal man wants to be a drag queen. And this is a drag queen that wants to be with your children. Okay? So a man who's not a normal man dressed as a highly sexualized woman interacting with your children to do queer world making, including political organizing, has long been a project driven by desire. And we're not supposed to use the word groomer for this, guys. It is in part enacted through art forms like fashion, theater, and drag. We believe that Drag Queen Story Hour offers an invitation toward deeper public engagement with queer cultural production, particularly for young children and their families. Here it comes. Get ready. 
It may be that Dry Queen Story Hour is, quote, family friendly. I messed it up after I get you already. It may be that Dry Queen Story Hour is, quote, family friendly in the sense that it is accessible and inviting to families with children. But it is, a le- but it is less a sanitizing force than it is a, pre- a preparatory introduction to alternate modes of kinship. Wait, what? So we're going to trade on a pun or an equivocation of what family-friendly means is what's happening here. Family-friendly is about to become one of those woke words that has two meanings. It may be that Drag Queen Story Hour is family-friendly in the sense that it is accessible and inviting to families with children, but it is less a sanitizing force than it is a preparatory introduction to alternate modes of kinship. Here, Drag Queen Story Hour is family-friendly in the sense of, quote, family as an old-school queer code to identify and connect with other queers on the street. Drag Queen Story Hour is claiming to be family-friendly and letting you believe that it is accessible and inviting to families with children and family-friendly environments. But that's just an introduction. That's just a a preparation to a whole different idea of what family means. Instead, Drag Queen Story Hour explicitly says this is not by some rando. This is not by some rando academic. This is by Little Miss Hot Mess. Little Miss Hot Mess is a drag queen. Little Miss Hot Mess is a drag queen that does Drag Queen Story Hour. Little Miss Hot Mess is a drag queen that does Drag Queen Story Hour as one of the leaders of the organization that facilitates Drag Queen Story Hour. And here we have the confession. Family means something different. Family doesn't mean your mom and your dad and your sisters, your brothers. Family as an old-school queer code to identify and connect with other queers on the street. And that invocation of the drag family earlier makes a lot more sense. So your kids are going to be brought into a family-friendly environment where the family is the nest under the drag queen. Family-friendly. Family-friendly. I am hesitating because the swear words that want to come out of my mouth right now. I will discipline myself. We do, however, share the well-founded concerns surrounding the profit-driven co-optation of queer social movements. They're not worried about grooming the kids. They're worried about profit-driven co-optation of queer social movements. They're worried about queer activism. They're worried about queer activism, not the children. We certainly understand why the mainstream public would be drawn to queer artistry. Quite frankly, why wouldn't you be? It looks good. It's edgy. It's all in. It's a lot of fun. Just like the Attorney General of Michigan said. However, when public engagement with queer cultures is shallow, it risks becoming exploitative. Oh yeah, queer. You know, you know, drag queen story hour might be exploitative of the drag queen. In this way, Drag Queen Story Hour is caught in the crosshairs of capitalism. Drag queens are simultaneously among the most beloved and reviled members of queer communities, and their feminized labor has historically been exploited in service of entertainment. Yeah, that's literally their damn job. Of course, drag queens are also workers who need to make money now. And Drag Queen Story Hour provides a new avenue for income. Yeah, using tax dollars. As Drag Queen Story Hour gains wider public 
a wider public audience, there are the usual requests for resources that can be used to advance LGBT inclusion in schools. These requests beckon the production of boxed curricula, corporate-style inclusivity trainings, and the lesson sequences that can be absorbed by school structures and budgets. Prefabricated, replicable curricula may offer profitability, but performance art is not easily packaged. We ask, will Drag Queen Story Hour succumb to pragmatism, or will it revel in its strategic defiance, its transformative power, its campy thrills, and its alternative kinship structures? You see, Drag Queen Story Hour threatens drag and queer activism, not children in these people's minds. Because money, and they have to, and school curriculum and structure. As we write this article, here's the end, Drag Queen Story Hour continues to draw public enthusiasm and is set to expand. Of course, we are excited about that, yet we also wonder, how Drag Queen Story Hour can continue to exist in Munoz's words, quote, on the horizon, engaging with the power of young children's imaginations today to begin to envision alternate tomorrows. Playing with drag can be a way to remember that in the words of Harney and Moten. We are already here, moving. We're dressing up, we're shaking our hips, and we're finding our light, even in the fluorescence. We're reading books while we read each other's looks and we're leaving a trail of glitter that won't ever come out of the carpet. That's society through your children, and we're leaving a trail of glitter that won't ever come out of the carpet. Drag Queen Story Hour is like the pinnacle of groomer schools. It's very, very clear. It's unbelievable to me that this exists, even after all this time. Even after all this time studying this, reading these things, it's unbelievable, unbelievable to me that this exists. That this paper, confessing this, making it this clear, exists. There can be no doubt about what Drag Queen Story Hour, Drag Queen Everything, Family Friendly actually means. And there can be no doubt that the people doing it know and are strategically and intentionally lying so that they can leave a trail of glitter that will never come out of the carpet in society and in your children. Groomer schools is real. I don't know another word for this. I cannot fathom another word to apply to this. Whether we look back to like 1984, where I've read through Gail Rubin's Thinking Sex, whether I read these papers in this Queer Theory of Education, now this one from 2021, previous one from 2019, the theme is consistent. The theme is absolutely consistent. There's absolutely no understanding of why boundaries exist, the desire to destroy those boundaries, to transgress those boundaries, into, including to transgress those boundaries into children. Pedophilia is flirted with in Gail Rubin's Thinking Sex. She calls it cross-generational relationships. Openly defended repeatedly. Child porn is defended repeatedly. And now on the other end, we have drag queens who want to leave a trail of glitter that will never come out of your children's carpet. This is the groomer school phenomenon. This is the thing that they're doing. There is a reason that they're doing it, because it destabilizes, because it turns them into political activists, living queerly, destabilized, miserable, until the world is changed to suit what, has, what glitter has been embedded into their lives and into their minds. This is what's happening. You must protect your kids. 
We must protect our children. We must protect all of the kids from this nightmare. That's on social media, that's in entertainment, that's in Disney movies, that's in whatever films, that's in whatever it happens to be, and that's now in schools, that's in libraries, that's from city officials who are supporting this. This is from state attorney generals, attorneys general, who are supporting this in blue states. In Michigan, which is actually very purple. We have to protect our kids from this. Groomer schools is real. Groomer schools is the right word for it. Groomer schools is being revealed to the world right now, and they are pedal to the metal to keep it going. And you hear why. You can hear why. They want to disrupt the nuclear family. They want to disrupt reproductive futures, both in terms, well, one can certainly unambiguously in terms of reproducing the existing society so they can have their revolution, but conceivably in terms of reproductive futures, in terms of you having grandchildren. They want to disrupt all of it. They want to take that, seize means of control of it, and have a new drag family, a nest of your children through drag queens in schools. And we have public officials across the country supporting it. I hope this has helped you understand it. I hope you understand what's going on more clearly now. I hope you hear that it has deep roots back to people like Rousseau and Hegel and Marx and all of that and Marcuse and Freire. Freire is explicit here. I hope you hear that, that there's a trajectory here, an intention here, a goal here that's getting closer and closer to being realized through these activities. And that our time is the time where we have to deal with it because this is the time when they decided to pull the trigger on it. I hope you understand better. I hope you understand that, that this is really what's there, that this is all comprehensible, and that it's actually not that hard to resist. They're not that powerful if we actually see what is there, call it for what it is, show them what is there, and make them own up to it and be held accountable for it. That's what we have to do. 